Okay, so welcome everybody to uh, the first national town hall under uh, the, the new national officers, myself and Captain Ed Sitcher, along with uh, the returning Secretary Treasurer, uh, Pat Clark, as well as we have a number of board members uh, who are here to take questions, and then uh, also a number of subject matter experts from our different committees. So what we're gonna do here, <clears throat> we'll start off with uh, an update from the national officers. Um, wanna hit on a couple of sound off, and then we're gonna go to our committees for their update. We've got negotiating, scheduling, flight time, duty time, contract compliance, and uh, uh, compass. And then we're gonna go into discussion on that actually should say 22001, because uh, I know there are a lot of questions out there. I need to mute somebody. All right, so first off with monthly town hall concept, um, we're gonna try to do this every month and we're gonna try to keep it on a consistent day of uh, the week. So we're going to shoot for Wednesdays. Uh, and as we kind of get our arms around doing this and get into a flow, we're also going to try to keep it to a consistent time. So for right now, the next one is planned for August 10th at uh, 1800. Um, Ed and I have now been in office for uh, about two weeks. We've got a big long list of projects that we have. We'll probably get into that uh, a little bit more on the details of that. But Ed, if you would, um, why don't you tell the folks what, uh, what you've been thinking of in terms of polling? All right. How's that for the sound? Can you hear me, Chris? Yeah, loud and clear. Okay. Uh, we've gone back to uh, the same people that polled us last time. We we're going to start immediate polling up. Uh, it's just not going to be telephone polling this time. I was uh, informed that the uh, telephone polling is a whole lot more accurate, but it also takes a whole lot more time. And now that we're getting towards the end game in uh, our negotiations, we're going to do web-based polling. Uh, they are formulating the questions as we speak right now. It won't be as extensive as it was for the polling that happened before we started section six, but that should be out by the end of uh, the month. I'm thinking uh, our first poll should be taking place. This contract's been signed. We're looking at about a month before we start that. All right, Chris. Excellent, thanks, Ed. Uh, a couple other notes. Uh, let's see here, Gemma Meehan. Uh, Stop chair. We got a couple, a couple of upcoming VDRs. Gemma, if you want to unmute and talk to us about that. Uh, sure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Um, we do have a VDR coming up July 26th in Chicago. There is a uh, pub event the night before that we have now opened up to guests for Jul uh, July 25th at the uh, Cubs baseball game. And we have the rooftop at Sheffield rooftop. So it's going to be a really good unifying event. So again, we're going to talk about the LOA, but where you stand on that right now doesn't matter. We are still in section six and we need to show our resolve and show up to these VDRs. Um, and the next one after Chicago is going to be Charlotte. That's August 18th with a Top Golf pub event on um, August 17th. So you can go onto the website and RSVP to these events. If you have any questions, just let me know. Hey, Jim, I think you just muted yourself. I did. Did you hear the first part? Yeah, we heard all the first part. It just right okay. at the very end. I don't know if you were trying to hit your mute button because you were done. Yes. Okay, perfect. 
Alrighty. So <clears throat> another bullet here, um, just to let everybody know that uh, it's, I know it's easy to complain about things, but I want to impress on all of you that if you give us constructive feedback, we're going to listen to it. It gets results. Um, two examples that we have here. So there's a new app that came out a while back. It's called Check My Pay. It's made by an American Airlines pilot. There was a, a, a lot of, uh, there was a thread that started on our forums and it basically amounted to, hey, why do I have to pay this person $10? Why isn't the union doing something for me? Well, as it turns out, because somebody had reached out to us and, and said, hey, what can we do about this? Uh, we got our IT steering committee involved. Uh, they reached out to that pilot. So we're currently working to see if we can bring him and that programming under the umbrella of APA IT uh, so that we can offer you that service for free. Uh, as another example, we're gonna talk about 2201 and the communications that happen real time as that is occurring. But one of the bits of feedback was, hey, you weren't communicating quickly enough. And it takes a while to get all that calm out. Um, but something as simple as a text message that says, hey, this is something that just happened. We acknowledge it. We're working on it. Again, we took that to our IT department. We're going we're gonna to try to develop a mechanism so that when there are big issues like this that pop up, if nothing more than just that sentence that says, this just happened, got it, we're working on it, more to follow. Uh, so the takeaway here is give us your constructive feedback you know obviously you're still free to complain as much as you want but complaining doesn't move the needle and the constructive feedback does and so with that uh, as we are finishing up like i said this is a work in progress the town hall at alliedpilots.org that we had all of you pre-submit your questions to please use that to give us feedback and we can fix this uh, anything that needs to be going forward <clears throat> all right so right into our uh, our questions here and uh for the board of directors, national officers, uh, anybody who, who would like to uh, pitch in, feel free. And I know that uh, Captain Dave Powell from Chicago, a Chicago chair is going to weigh in on this. Why isn't there a provision in APA's constitution and bylaws that states no contract will be signed that doesn't have full retroactive pay? It would eliminate a major incentive for the company to continually drag out, uh, uh, drag our negotiations out past the amendable date. Dave Powell, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Chris, I had to unmute. Listen, I was just going to make a reference to the fact that already in the Constitution and bylaws, there's a directive about achieving uh, full retroactivity. Um, the way the question is asked, though, that, that the idea that you wouldn't sign a contract without something um, gets to sort of a lesson that I've seen play out a few times, that I've learned having watched this played out several times uh, over the, the years, and that is you don't, you don't negotiate via resolution you know, and you don't tie your hands to anything um, via a resolution that's going to come out of a negotiated process simply because you never know what the end state is. I understand the sentiment, but I think the first, I, I think, I think it fails to acknowledge that the RLA is the enemy for labor uh, uh, in all of this. And it's the RLA that affords the company, you know, on average, 24 to 36 months for the section six process to play out. And the longer it plays out, the more challenging and I just say, I use that word uh, specifically, the more challenging uh, full retro gets versus, you know, the ability in the context of a negotiation to find, you know, the opportunities to extract maximum value. Maybe that's via full retroactivity, but that may be via other means to include some portions of retroactivity. So I just want to share an opinion uh, from a board member about the challenge in, in approaching um, the CMB like that. And I'll yield. Thanks. And uh, I see that uh, Boston Vice Chair Kurt Detzer, you want to address this? Yeah, th thanks, Chris. And just for, for educational purposes, in the uh, CNB, it's uh, in under objectives and rights of APA. 
Article 2E states to achieve full retroactivity and full pensionability for all improvements in pay from the amendable date of the previous agreement to the date of signing a new agreement. So it is in essence in there, it is an objective and it is, uh, it'll continue to be an objective. Um, I, I, I won't weigh in, Dave, Dave did, uh, did very well weighing in as, as to why maybe we don't want to tie our hands, but uh, um, I, I, I think as a goal or an objective, it, it suits it uh, pretty well. I yield. All right, actually that, Curtis. Next question. Uh, will the BOD consider directing the negotiating committee to abandon the targeted approach and pursue permanent fixes to our pilots' quality of life and work rules that encompass all sections of the contract? So, and a caveat here, which is why I put this asterisk next to BOD. Any answers that you get here, they are not, um, they are not a directive, nor are they opinion of the BOD because that is 20 directors. What you're hearing is a single director's um, input towards that. So with that, uh, again, uh, Chicago Chair Dave Powell, Listen, I don't I mean, I'm not trying to bogart the uh, speakers list, Chris, but thank you. And I appreciate that you letting me weigh in. Um, listen, I think the targeted approach has gotten a bad name. I think every section six should be targeted, focused on our pilot needs. Um, there's always going to be a list of wants. And and I frankly believe that the, the quote, targeted approach that 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 is specifically the items that we are engaged in actively in the context of ongoing section six negotiations, get to frankly, most if not all those quality of life and work rule issues that our pilots are frustrated by, be it um, uh, pairing distribution, um, re the frustration with reassignments, um, profound disappointment and frustration with uh, sequence protection as, as encapsulated in, in section four C. All of those very important uh, all uh, uh, issues are, are actively under negotiation. And so I believe we're going to successfully uh, uh, achieve uh, industry leading gains along those lines. And, and, and so I would ask in response, what really aren't we getting at? If you've looked at the full menu of, 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 um, of items that are in, included in the targeted approach. Uh, admittedly, it was derived in a period over a year ago when when the economic landscape was different, but but we've expanded, frankly, and it, yeah, issues within the targeted. And again, I, I believe it actually gets to what our what our polling and our experience with our membership uh, tells us are those quality of life and work rule issues that are most important to you. Yield. Thanks, Dave. Uh, next up, Boston Chair Pete Gamble, Captain Pete Gamble. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, one thing I'd like to share with everybody is that, I mean, we're trying to make this a valued approach. I mean, I think targeted approach has kind of come and gone, but at this point, um, there are other issues that are coming into play that uh, make this a valued approach. And the valued approach is actually contract, you know, focusing on work role and uh, quality of life changes. The pay stuff will come. I mean, it, it's been said that uh, there'll be matches for, for industry standard for that. And that's something we need to, to hold true. But um, think of this as a, as a valued approach and, and it's changing uh, constantly. So it's not something that's just the same ticket items that we had before, but those ticket items are actually create more value for pilots than anything else in the contract. So with that, I yield. Thank you. Thank you, Captain Gamble. Uh, just a kind of an admin note for the questions that are coming up with Q&A. Some of those we're clicking that we're going to answer live and we're clearing them out. That's simply because they match pre-submitted questions that we know are already in here. So we're not dismissing your questions. Okay, uh, what are the changes made by President Sitcher to the composition of national committees and uh, when will changes be announced to the membership? 
Captain Sutri, you want to take that one? Yeah, Chris, thanks. Um, well, first of all, let me go back to the end of the question first, that it's not standard procedure to go ahead and notify the membership of the changes to committees. I would certainly be happy to do that if you guys wanted to know. But uh, right now, the way I've chosen to run it is go ahead and appoint a committee chairman and uh, or chairwoman, and then go ahead and let him or her choose who they want on their committees. So uh, the membership of the committees changes by the day. If I notified the membership every time we made a change on one of those committees, I think you guys would be a little overwhelmed. The, the big hitters, though, are these, uh, if you want to know. The safety is uh, going to be new safety chairman. It's Todd Wissing. He's already taken over. We have uh, a new training chairman. That's Anne-Marie Tazar. I have a new aeromedical chairman, Allison Glazer. I have a new captain's authorities chairman, Carl Jackson. And uh, they are quickly assigning all those people, the deputy chairs included, on their uh, committees. In some cases, they're leaving the, uh, the, the constituency of those committees alone. Um, there's also uh, four ad hoc committees that are being started, although the uh, draft, uh, the uh, agendas for those and the budgets haven't been put together yet. And that is uh, the safety transition team. Uh, that's going to be Gavin Tade, Jim Pavlica, Paul Rancatori. I've got a security committee that's being formed under Josie Wales, and I'm hoping board member Joe Collins will be a part of that. Uh, I've got an IT transition team that's still being uh, contemplated. We're uh, going to, Chris and I are moving IT out from under scheduling and into uh, a service provider for the other committees so that they could go ahead and uh, utilize the services to go ahead and get data. We're, we're trying to go to a more metrics and data-driven approach in the building. We've got a whole lot of data that we're not using right now. And it doesn't just do scheduling uh, a lot of good. It does, for instance, ENFA. They need to know that when they go to the investors. Uh, we've got other committees, uh, safety, FOQA, I mean, you name it, that can go ahead and think of better ways to utilize the data. So uh, we're gonna be putting some people on that transition team. And then uh, finally, I got a drop reinstatement committee under Peterson and Hella. And uh, there's a couple other people who have not signed on or not. Those are people who have fallen off the list. I've got a couple of uh, former TWA guys I want to get back on, uh, which, which will we'll hear the stories, and I want them to investigate it. We know we have our LTD issue. There's a, a bunch of LTD guys that have fallen off. And as you know, when we passed that resolution back in 2016 to get those guys back on, the guys who were taken off uh, already were not allowed to be reinstated. So we're going to be uh, investigating methods we could get the company to, uh, I guess, uh, kind of persuade them to put those guys back on. Um, and that's it. Uh, other than that, I don't really want to go through the details of the subcommittees because those are going to be changed by the chairman. And in fact, I just made two changes today. I, I hope that answers your question. All right. Thanks, Ed. Next question. Do you guys ever fly on the line? So I'll, I'll take this one first and then uh, throw it over to any other board members who want to do it. <clears throat> so as a default, when we're on the board, um, I was on, I was a DFW vice chair for uh, two years prior to taking over this position. As a default, we bid a normal line. And the only thing that we're taking off of at the beginning of the month is the normally three days that we have for uh, the monthly board meetings that we have because we're in section six. So I flew a normal line. I bid reserve. Um, prior to coming into office here, the last three months of, uh, of reserve, I was flown uh, up to and through my reserve guarantee. And one of the months I hit the 85 hour mark. Uh, as a national officer, it's a little bit different. Um, we don't bid schedules, they, they get wiped, but I intend to uh, fly to the max extent I can. Uh, on Sunday, I displaced somebody from the last day and a half of his trip and I took his uh, Palm Springs overnight. So um, 
that's my answer. Uh, let's see, Jason Gustin's got his hand raised and I know uh, Captain Powell would have an input too. Jason, go ahead. Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, to answer that question, you know, I did in, in uh, uh, PBS, just like a regular line pilot. And like Chris said, I have about one trip removed a month um, for a PU, paid union leave for regularly scheduled board meeting. I think this month will be a little bit different. I was removed mid-sequence um, over my um, trip to come back to deal with uh, the Green July issue. Uh, the only other removal that I have in the last couple of months has been a PW for, for being sick with COVID. But yeah, I fly a, a full schedule and um, I'm happy to chat with anybody that's that's got questions about that. Uh, thanks, Jason. Uh, Captain Powell, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, just, I will echo what uh, um, Jason just said. Chicago, since November, has been posting on the uh, Chicago domicile page. Any member is free to take a look at it. But we post uh, the number of uh, PU days we use uh, every month. Uh, we also include our uh, our pay to max number and then the number of, uh, of premium days we've been flying uh, in an effort to uh, offer transparency. Yes, we do fly the line. I will give you an example, however, of my month of July, one we're currently in. Um, I had a three-day trip going out the 4th of July. As you well know, the schedule blew up. The TTS, TTOT rather, blew up on July 2nd. We had uh, important conference calls, uh, dealing with issues all weekend, and then scheduled conference calls Wednesday or Tuesday and Wednesday of that week. So I was taken off uh, a three-day trip that I was at every intention of flying, in addition to the flying over... Um, uh, the fourth, the uh, the footprint of the board meeting. So yes, we fly. Usually, there's always days taken off for meetings, and inevitably things pop up. Whether it's a section twenty need for section twenty ones uh, in base or other board business that takes us off trip. So I, I've been sharing. Probably on average, I fly about half of my regularly scheduled bid month. Uh, bid month, I can hold a line. I hate reserve. I never bid reserve. So uh, I probably fly on average about fifty percent of my awarded trips. Thank you. All right, thank you, uh, Kurt Detzer, Boston Vice. Yeah, if my if my uh, video worked, you could see that I have my tie uh, loosened, and I uh, just got back from a trip uh, about a half an hour before the meeting started. We most of us fly a, a line. There are a few that that fly uh, reserve. Uh, Pete was a reserve flyer for the. Um, good bit of the last uh, couple of years, enough so that he had to ask me how to bid for a line here a few months ago. And I think he's bidding a line more so. And it also depends on some of the committees that uh, that one is on. Um, I happen to be on a BRAB that doesn't really take much time away, uh, but but others are on other committees that, that do uh, need to get removed from trips. That's it, thanks. Thanks, Curtis. Uh, Thomas Copeland, Miami Chair. Thanks, Chris. I uh, appreciate the question. I uh, have my HI1 and HI2s posted on the Miami Domicile webpage. So uh, it's easy to see when I'm flying and the availability as well. I'm usually uh, taking off one trip, as pointed out earlier, per month uh, due to the monthly domicile meetings. I'm currently on a layover and, uh, and uh, I'm a line holder as well. I mostly bid the line because it's a little more predictability when it comes to uh, uh, doing the union work. Thank you. I yield. Thanks. And uh, Captain Gamble, Boston Chair, did I forget to lay your hand? Did you? No, it's, it's good. Uh, thanks, Chris. 
Um, I, I think there's a misnomer of, of, of thinking that, that union directors and people that work for the union are not flying. I think that that's uh, been cleared, clarified by the people who've just spoken. I mean, the best way we actually, I mean, I prefer to fly. I mean, flying is actually uh, getting out there and having fun and talking to people and finding out what, they, what their real issues are. And every time I do that, I learn something about somebody else's uh, situation. So uh, it's it, most board members and, and, and committee members actually do that. So it's, it's a way to keep in touch. And I think that um, we can focus in on some of the misnomers of one trip or here trip. And, and sometimes that creates the negative. And uh, maybe we ought to start thinking about how to create the positive because most of us actually are out there actually connecting with pilots and flying trips. Uh, with that, I yield. Thank you. All right. Thank you all. Next uh, on to the next question. Do you realize the mechanics had a TRO filed against them just prior to getting a contract? Captain Sitcher, would you like to take that? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I'm glad you asked. Um, look, guys, uh, I've, I, I eat, uh, I have breakfast scheduled, put it, put it this way, with uh, the TWU. I talk to them all the time. And there's some similarities and differences here. But if you go back and you talk to any of the officers from US Air, from APA, when we got enjoined, Having a TRO is not a good thing. It does not get you a contract. And it, it's almost as if this question kind of insinuates that a TRO would help us get a contract. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't persuade you of anything other than that. It, then, then you really don't know the RLA. And here's the reality check. The RLA is not written for labor. It doesn't expedite the process. It doesn't facilitate the process. It's, it's written to maintain status quo in interstate you know, status quo in interstate commerce. And if we do anything to interrupt interstate commerce, we will have a TRO filed against us. And the company was on the way to filing a TRO when in the end game, the board approved uh, what we got as LOA 2201. Now, if that TRO had been filed, a lot of us would, would say, hey, we proved our point. And, and uh, probably a lot of you wouldn't have even gone to work anyway as, as kind of a, you know what, to the judge. But, you know, bad things start happening at that point. And with those bad things, let me tell you what would have happened with the TRO. I, I know I'm running a little off the rails on 2201, but I can't communicate with you clearly under a TRO. I'm forced to tell you guys to go back to work, even if I don't want you to go back to work. Uh, also, the fines start racking up once, uh, once we fail to comply. And those fines back in 98, when I, re I remember when we had our sick out, ended up being millions of dollars, we ended up having to take a ton of money out of the APA's coffers to go ahead and give back to the company when we could have been using them for important things. It could, could have been done to uh, in 2009. We hired Feinberg to do the, uh, the uh, ERISA lawsuit against the company for the removal of the LTD guys. We didn't have enough money for that. There's all kinds of things we could have done with those millions and millions of dollars rather than have a TRO filed against us and been basically put in the corner. So uh, I'm, you know, I, I really like to have maybe uh, Jim Clark weigh in on this one too. I know he was on the call. Jim, are you up? I am up. Jim, I'm going to hand it off to you so that they can hear a lawyer talk about a TRO. I've kind of answered the question. TWU had the TRO. They were well. They were way further down the path on negotiations than we are. But in any case, can you can you please answer uh, a little about the TRO and please? Let enlighten us as to what really happens once once we have an injunction filed against us. 
Sure. So I'll speak to what did happen in the TWU case just a little bit. So uh, as many, many people know, back in 2019, TWU uh, was enjoined by American Airlines for what was alleged to have been a, a work slowdown. Um, they American was able to get an injunction from a federal district judge in the Northern District of Texas, which uh, placed uh, a number of uh, what what might be considered onerous restrictions and obligations on the TWU in terms of how it uh, how it conducted its business going forward. Uh, it directed the TWU to communicate to its members uh, specific things in terms of uh, not engaging in any work slowdowns and directing them to to do their work. Uh, it required that communications made by the TWU to its members be shared with American Airlines before uh, it was issued to the membership. Uh, and there were a number of other uh, restrictions placed on the TWU in terms of how it conducted its business while under the injunction. And it was a permanent injunction at that point. It was going to last uh, until they, they satisfied either the court or they reached an agreement on, in section six. <clears throat> the, the company also did uh, file a motion for contempt seeking damages uh, because they contended that the, the terms and conditions of the injunction were not followed by the TWU and its members. Uh, and that motion ultimately uh, was resolved and withdrawn once they reached a new agreement uh, which happened in in or about January of 2020. Um, but <clears throat> the operating under a TRO is no way for a union to operate. I mean, there are reasons for that. And as Ed indicated, uh, the law is set up to ensure that there is no inter interruption of commerce. And uh, to the extent that a, a judge were to deem uh, any actions by a union, as it did in the TWU case, uh, to be uh, a violation of, of the law in that it was a, uh, a work job action, work action that was interrupting commerce, uh, a TRO would be issued with the potential for contempt awards. We, we've already lived that. So it is not, it is not something that that we are looking to do. And certainly uh, the TWU suffered it in, in 2019 and only because they ultimately reached an agreement did it did they get out from underneath it. And, and Jim, can I, can I add something else too? Um, on the piece from the TRO, uh, you know, the, the company used the excuse, let, let, me, let me be more specific, Robert Eisen, when he talked to me, he used the excuse that the comm coming out of the domiciles was illegal. And for that reason, they were going to enjoin us. Uh, and let me tell you, nothing could be further from the truth because we were looking at the, the, the comm from the domiciles and it said, you, you don't have an obligation to fly. Not that you're being asked not to fly, but it doesn't matter. And, and this is where several members of the board, I even think, don't get it. It doesn't matter if, the, if it was the comm, if it was a secret handshake in the airport, it doesn't matter. If they can show that interstate commerce was interrupted, they could point the finger at anything. And the judge's responsibility at that point is to go ahead and get interstate commerce going again. 
And, and it's not going to help us to sit there. We're going we're to be fighting the uphill battle. We're going to be on the defensive trying to prove it wasn't something that we did that caused it. So it's important to delineate on that. It, it didn't matter what he blamed us for. At that point, at least on the morning of the 5th, 31 out of 93 flights that I got, and I'm, I was watching the real-time data come in, and believe you me, it was like, uh-oh, the guys aren't going to work. And, and on one hand, I was proud. On the other hand, I'm like, here it comes. And, and that's exactly the way that that went down. So I'm, I'm going to stop right there, Chris, if you want to go ahead and have somebody else weigh in. Uh, nope, that's it for that. Don't go too far, Ed, because the next one is, is the new APA president going to always cave when ISOM calls? Beautiful. All right. Um, let me go back to, I guess, your definition of cave. I wish you'd put up who asked these questions, Chris. I love it. Um, sounds like the kind of questions I would ask when I was uh, a member at large. But anyway, look, guys, we got we got a million dollars, a hundred million dollars out of the company. And that's the valuation we put on it. Uh, that's a low ball valuation, by the way. When you when you add up all the permanent holiday pay we got, when you add up the fact that premium's not going to be offset anymore for sick, when you add up the triple pay, some of our captains are out there making over $1,000 an hour to fly. I mean, we didn't give back any grievances. We didn't give back up any, any work rules. We didn't give uh, an AIP like we had during Green December, which was a result of the, uh, the agreement we had that stated uh, we're on a, a permanent status quo for the filling of uh, DOTC and RAS until it's programmed. We're on a, for the filling of open time until DOTC and RAS are, are programmed. Excuse me. So we absolutely did not go backwards on anything, but we did allow the company to reimpose those trips on our schedules. And a lot of guys are bitter about that. They felt that, you know, due to the fact the trip trade system glitched, we had the leverage we needed to get a, a tentative agreement out of these guys. Okay, look, there's no way that we're going to be able to trade the short-term fix of getting our guys to go to work and getting a judge to avoid giving us a TRO against the long-term fix of getting that tentative agreement. Um, if it would have taken more than the one or two hours it takes to deliberate over that short-term fix to get a tentative agreement. And the judge isn't going to sit around and wait for a week or two or a month to see if we get a tentative agreement before he orders us to go back to work. It just isn't going to happen that way. So when Robert Ison called, and he called me seven times over the course of those four days, I, I chose to take, I, I'm not the negotiator, and it's, it's not my latitude to go ahead and negotiate. But what I can do is take a piece that we already have at the negotiating table and offer it up as, as possible fix for this. And that's exactly what I did. This was a trip trade system meltdown. And so I propose that we fix the trip trade system once and for all. We've, we have been passing holiday pay across the table for three and a half years with nothing but crickets. We've also been arguing about TTS rule A and C. And if you remember back in December, the board shut off the negotiations until we fixed it. And then Ferguson turned it back on. So we have stuff at the table that would fix this. And what I tried to tell Robert Isom is that if the system worked the way it was supposed to work, if it incentivized flying on the holidays and weekends, if guys were able to move their trips when they wanted to move them, if the lights from the trip trade system broke again, he would never even know it because those who wanted to fly for the money were flying for the money. Those who wanted to stay home were staying home. And he said, I agree with you 100%, Ed. I agree with that in principle. I'm going to give it back to my team. And that's where we went from that. And at the end of the day, through this whole process, 
which if you want to know more about it, I'll probably just going to make a video to detail it. We ended up walking away with permanent holiday pay, albeit not the pass that we had made because our pass, even though our pass had eight holidays in it, they boil it down to nine days. It wasn't the whole sequence that flew over those days. Hey, there was, there was some things in this LOA that weren't exactly the way he said they were going to be, but we got something out of it. We, we made a step forward. Uh, he said those trips were going to stay green if they were reimposed on pilot schedules. He promised me that on the first call. That didn't happen either. As you know, once those trips were reimposed, they stayed red. But he did keep the promise to keep those trips at triple pay. We've never gotten triple pay before. The flight attendants have. We haven't. I threw it out there, and, and he stuck to it. And the, and the holiday pay we were passing across the table wasn't double pay. And now we've got double pay for the holidays. So, I mean, we made a lot of forward progress on this. And if, if you're going to go ahead and say that I caved, man, I don't know what else I could do, guys. I, still, I, I stepped up to the plate. I think we hit a triple. And you guys are pissed I didn't hit a grand slam. I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at that. That's all I can say. All right, Ed, thank you. Uh, on to the next question. <clears throat> uh, where does the BOD stand on the APA Alpha merger? And again, I'll remind everybody what I said earlier. Uh, the question, or I'm sorry, the, the answers do not represent where the board stands because that is 20 directors. But uh, we'll get some input from some of the individual directors. First up, uh, Captain Kurt Detzer, Boston Vice Chair. Thanks, Chris. And just as Chris had said, uh, this is my opinion only. Um, I am on the steering committee, so we're, we're working to get the the, uh, the resolution that, uh, that, that uh, Captain Karam has brought forward onto the, onto the docket, it, 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 there is a, uh, there's a process that has to be followed and, and it's a uh, um, process of whether it goes to a, a, uh, a smaller committee or a, a drafting committee or, the, or in plenary, which is the, the full board. So I, 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 that is still in play a little bit, but at any rate, um, the resolution itself, and, and in, in my opinion only, the resolution itself is, is a little problematic. It has some things that are, uh, what can I say? They're, they're, they're not constitutionally correct. Um, and I don't wanna get into the details of, of, of why that is, but I, I personally, I'm, I'm open-minded to the idea. I, I think it should be on our terms. I think the timing is difficult because of, of the environment we are in. We, you know, we've, we've just finished talking about an LOA and we're talking about section six and, and, and now all of a sudden we're going to talk about ALPA. Uh, how many balls are we going to juggle? I guess um, as the resolution states, we, we can, it would be a separate discussion and not interrupt section six. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how that visually works, but uh, anyway, my opinion only, uh, hope, hopefully somebody else uh, chimes in. Thanks. Thanks, Curtis. Next up is uh, First Officer Jason Gustin, DFW Vice. I thank you, Chris. Um, and I'll share um, Kurt's comments that uh, I'm definitely open to the discussion. Uh, I am concerned that um, it could potentially pose a distraction to where our focus should be right now, which is which is Section Six. Um, I think that in the long run, the conversation should be focused on what's best for our membership, what's best for the seniority list, the pilots at American Airlines. I think there's a lot of good things that I've heard about it. I've been in discussions with uh, the pilots that are in the, uh, that are that are kind of running that effort, that grassroots effort. And, and I applaud them. I think they're doing a good job. I think they're they're trying to present a very reasoned and rational argument. 
I do not support the argument that we should go to Alpha because APA is terrible. I don't think we should um, pursue a merger um, based on emotion. I think that um, there are a lot of pros, there are a lot of cons, and, and we have to be um, deliberate and level-headed as we approach that and, and think through it. Um, but again, um, my goal would be to find uh, the best the best union representation for our pilots, and and maybe that is to remain with a, an independent association like APA, or maybe it's to uh, throw our hat into a larger, um, you know, um, international union, uh, which might dilute some of our our um, autonomy and our and our authority as an independent group. So yeah, I just there'll be a lot of questions. I'm looking forward to the discussion. And, and uh, I think that we just avoid the emotion, which is, hey, uh, ALPA is great or ALPA is terrible or APA is great or APA is terrible. Let's look at the facts and, and see where the chips fall. That's all I have. All right. Thanks, Jason. Next up, Captain Gamble, Boston Chair. Yes, uh, I just want to let everybody know that we have a process now on resolutions and resolutions is the best place for this to stand. And it actually goes through a plenary uh, group of discussions which includes legal and background information. And it, it's, it actually takes the time to look at um, essentially something of this sort, which is it would be a major change in, in how we actually operate. I will say uh, in, in concert with uh, Justin and, and Kurt that, you know, APA stands strong. And right now it's a matter of being able to redirect the, um, how we operate and go forward for what's best for the membership. I think the president just articulated that very well. Uh, when you have gains, you take them and you move forward with it. And we, we've done that. So ALPA provides a, um, a great base for learning. Um, right now, our focus should be talking to the MECs of both United and Delta on how we patent, patent bargain going forward because patent bargaining right now is our value. And beyond anything else or targeted approach, whatever, the valued approach right now is pattern bargaining and it's in full bloom and the new leadership will take, take hold of that. And they, they actually will, will make that work for us. So uh, with that, I yield. Thank you. All right. Captain Sisher, do you want to say something about this? Yeah, Chris, thanks. Uh, look, ALP is a great organization. They're a large organization. I talked to Joe DePete. Uh, I talked to Russ Sklenka every week. I talked to, uh, I talked to Mike, um, Mike Hamilton, the United Mech chairman, I talked to him yesterday, although he wasn't saying a whole lot about the TA. But uh, that TA at United, uh, you know, is uh, is in question right now. I don't know if they're going to vote it in or vote it out. But I can tell you that the panacea for, for contract negotiations is not necessarily Alpha. Um, right now, we're in the middle of contract negotiations. And every time this board sits down, this is what they talk about. What do we put on that table? What do we pull back? How are we going to maximize our gains? And, and to sit there and discuss something as contentious as a merger or affiliation with another work group, uh, another union in the middle of negotiations, in my opinion, is a distraction. Uh, that doesn't mean that we can't continue to coordinate, cooperate, and share information with these guys. At the end of the day, Alpha has been super about sharing information with us, cooperating. Uh, I mean, holy mackerel. Uh, you know, it's pattern bargaining time right now. There's a bidding war for all of our services and we're in the driver's seat and it would only hurt us to not cooperate with Alpha. Now, I know you're going to have a, a case to be made that other airlines went ahead and they changed or merged with Alpha during negotiations. I know FedEx did it. I can remember JetBlue doing it. 
But in some cases, it's apples and oranges. FedEx was a much smaller organization than, than APA is right now. And also, uh, in JetBlue, it was their first darn contract. Those guys really needed the support that Alpha gave them. So I, I'm not sure if that's a case, an apples to apples comparison on what could happen if APA merges with Alpha in the middle of a new contract negotiations. And, and, I, and I've also made no mistake in saying that, guys, uh, the, the grass always does look greener on the other side of the fence, but you're going to have to let this play out. And, and God, if, if uh, Alpa ends up pattern bargaining on the top of APA, who's, who's out there leading? And I, I don't know. But I, I think at this point, uh, I'm, out of the, I'm obviously out of the decision. The board's going to make their minds up. But I would ask, you know, that group, which is very well organized, and, and they have a very good argument, if, if they could do some soul searching and say, is this the time to make that argument? Anyway, uh, Chris, I'll let you go. All right, thanks, Ed. And uh, so this is the last question for this section. It's back to you, Ed. Will you direct APA committees to stop doing <clears throat> AA work for them? What will you do about the relationship between our APA committees and their AA counterparts that ends up hurting the membership? Uh, yeah, this is a tough question. And we're in the process right now of peeling back the layers and not, you know, trying not to pull the grass with the weeds, so to speak. You know, at this point, as far as I'm concerned, the company is not doing anything to help us. And they're turning down union leave left and right. I've got an aeromedical chair that hasn't even been able to come and merge into the building right now or take her, her training because they won't approve her PU. I've got, I've got a meeting next week with several important congressmen and a senator, and I can't even get my GAC guys off the schedule to go meet with them. The, 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 the one-way street has got to stop. I'm tired of our members going across the street and, and helping management and, and Sometimes that helps us too, but at this point in time, you've got to ask yourself, all those guys out there doing SA work, is it helping them more than it's helping us? Hey, you know what? If you don't go out and you don't interview pilots, let them hire somebody else to interview pilots. If you don't do a lot of these special assignment work, you know, and each, each one's different, uh, you've got to, got to evaluate where would the company be? How many more, how many hundreds of people more would they have to hire? And when they have hundreds of people on special assignment and also UL every month, then no wonder they don't have enough guys left to fly the schedule so that our own guys can represent you. I had a, a board meeting. It was two board meetings ago. It was an SBOD. The entire base of Phoenix was left empty. The reps couldn't make it and, and their DDRs couldn't get PU. So there were two seats sitting empty. Phoenix was not represented at all for an entire meeting because their PU was being denied. Now we have a right as a union to be able to conduct our business. I'm taking that right up legal channels. I've got general counsel. We're getting ready to file a suit. I don't want to say anything more about that right now. And I can't get on here and say, don't volunteer for special assignment work because once again, uh, it's status quo. We're in section six. If we weren't in section six, I, I might have a different thing to say. But right now, because of section six and status quo, I can't say that. But I can go ahead and file a lawsuit and strongly encourage each and every one that is doing special assignment work if that is conducive to getting you a contract quickly. That's all I have to say on that. Okay, thanks, Ed. Uh, I'm actually going to jump back to the previous question. There was something that came up in the Q&A, and it's quick, so I'll address it from, from Paul. Uh, when will an exploratory Alpha merger committee be created? So the, as was mentioned, this is a resolution. Any pilot out there can read the resolution. It's been posted. If you go to the APA website, go to Quick Links, you go to uh, board meeting information, 
And up at the kind of the top left, it'll say uh, APA board resolutions. There's about six or seven resolutions in there right now. Um, so what the resolution seeks to do is to create an APA alpha merger committee. And that's what's going to um, schedule permitting, go to the board next week. Uh, and I think I skipped Captain Powell. Did you want to address something on uh, alpha? You know, yeah, that's fine. Um, thank you, Chris. Listen, I, I have uh, I've been on the board over six years and, and I, I probably have another eight years at the domicile level leading committees. So I, I've invested a lot of time and energy into APA. I, I think I know the building as well and the association as well as anybody. I know its strengths, I know its weaknesses and I see its many warts. So I, I, I am all for best process and finding the best um, representation. So I, I'm, I'm eyes wide open uh, with regards to the uh, upcoming ALPA resolution discussion. I think the resolution itself has a lot of work to, to, to be done. And, and that's just the nature of governing via resolution. So uh, nobody's expectations should be artificially elevated, nor should they be, um, nor should they be um, led to believe that, that we're not sincere in pursuing this. But um, just know that it's going to be, this is going to be an interesting one. It's going to take some time uh, and there should probably be no surprise or disappointment if there's not resolution, if you will, to this resolution out of the July meeting. That's just the reality of how we work through it, particularly uh, very important. And though I won't suggest this is going to be contentious, but it's important, dare I say, monumental. And, and so just understand that our process could take some time. Uh, and that's all I wanted to add. Thank you. All right, thanks, Captain Powell. Um, before we go on to the next one, there's a question in the Q&A, and we don't have a <clears throat> Government Affairs Committee slide up here, but uh, Jonathan Benton, if you can unmute, and I will ask this question. What is our PAC working on now, and what can we expect out of DC? Age 67, are lawmakers on our side at all in trying to hold the airline management accountable for our terrible operational performance? Okay, thanks, Chris. Um, so right now we've got five bills in the House, uh, two in the Senate. Uh, we're also working on uh, uh, stopping any rollback to the ATP standards, the global the the global gold standard. Um, uh, we've got the safest uh, training standards in the world, and we want to keep it that way. Um, the Regional Airline Association is pushing a narrative that if we lower the ATP, then um, then uh, under underserved communities, smaller communities, uh, would have uh, service. And uh, our point on that is that uh, you should not, whether you're in, riding, you and your family are riding in the back of a 777, or if you're on a CRJ uh, with one of the regionals, uh, there should be the same level of safety. There shouldn't be a different level of training and safety involved in that. So our pack is being utilized on those five things. Um, the five bills, the age 68, uh, we were being told a month ago, over a month ago, two months ago, that a bill was going to be dropped within a week. Um, and, uh, most of the, the SWAPA, Alpha and APA are all united in, in, in their understanding or their, their feeling that the age should not be increased. And very quickly, the implementation of 60 to 65 have appeared to happen overnight, but there was a bill in the House, a bill in the Senate, a hearing in the House, a hearing in the Senate. The FAA had commented on it, and it aligned us with IKO standards. IKO 65 with no plans to go over 65. 
So any pilot over the age of 65 couldn't fly to even Canada or Mexico. The only airline that has understood that is United and Scott Kirby, where he commented on CNBC that 36% of his pilots age 64 are out on medical. So that's the seven issues that we're working on. Next week, uh, Captain Sitcher and I, we have an event at the house on Monday. Uh, then we have an, then we're attending an event uh, for two members of Congress at Alpha after our event at the APA house. And then we uh, have two events on Tuesday before he needs to get back to town uh, for the SBOD. So anyway, I hope I answered that question. I hope that helps. Excellent. Thanks, Jonathan. Okay, so uh, we've got a sound off here that we're going to throw up and we're going to try to do this uh, as, a, as a routine thing, pulling uh, one or two sound offs and putting them into the, to the town hall. Um, so if you don't know what a sound off is, this is the way you can make your, your voice heard. These go to the uh, the national officers, the board of directors, and uh, a couple committees, primarily a negotiating committee. These are on the APA homepage uh, under the quick links. There's a link that says file a report and you can send a sound off. The key thing with these is, and this became apparent when we had the TTOT issues, these are not for time sensitive issues. These are, these are compiled as a batch file and they're sent out at 3 a.m. in the morning. So we had sound offs that were saying things like, hey, TTOT is off, do something. And they're, se they're sending these things at six or seven in the morning. Well, again, it's not going to be until, you know, 20 hours later until it's even sent, let alone when it's read. So for time sensitive stuff, contact your reps uh, uh, directly if you need to get something to them or the appropriate subject matter experts. Um, as far as getting the responses from the sound offs, those are going to be event domicile dependent. Um, I can tell you that we may not answer all of these, but we're definitely reading. them. I, I read every single sound off that comes in, uh, as do many reps. Uh, the key thing is make sure that your email is not set to emergency use only because then we can't respond to you. Normally, we get about 10 or 20 of these a day, but uh, in events like the TTOT event, uh, we got the numbers down there. On the third, which would have been Sunday, 135 of them. On Monday, we got 164, and on Tuesday, we got 202. So with that many, uh, a lot of times you won't get an individual response, but but again, most of us do read them all. So the sound off that I pulled here, I'm going to have... Um, Trisha Kennedy, our, uh, who is in charge of our grievance and dispute process, take this one. And it says, why does it take so long to rule on a presidential grievance such as 180033, uh, which was referenced in a recent union email? And for those who aren't aware, this is the uh, presidential reserve reassignment grievance. This was filed in 2018. Can you please explain to the membership why a process like this isn't moving forward? Trisha. Thank you, Chris. And I appreciate the opportunity to answer it. Excellent question. And I can say the frustration is, is certainly shared here. Overall, just like the extended Section 6 uh, negotiations, management does not meaningfully engage in resolving presidential grievances during the grievance process and lets them roll to arbitration. Then once the presidential grievance reaches that arbitration stage, AA will not sufficiently staff to cover its arbitration obligations, but it does staff just enough to cover some arbitrations. And once we finally have a specific case agreed to by management in a specific arbitration slot, then AA may make a reasonable offer to resolve the presidential grievance. And lots of folks may recall last year, we had good luck with that. Um, uh, after we got the arbitration scheduled, then management would come back with a with a, a, an offer we could work with. 
a specific point of frustration and missed opportunity to resolve disputes is at the appeal hearing stage and the PAC stage. The company has the ability to resolve and rule on these uh, presidential grievances at any point, but at the appeal hearing stage, the vice president of flight, Captain Chip Long, can address and resolve the grievance. He can, he has control of it uh, per the contract and, and has jurisdiction uh, uh, over it on his side of the table. But for most presidential grievances, and I, I mean the majority of presidential grievances, the company does not even issue an appeal hearing decision. So we go over, we present the case, uh, give them our, our documents, make our uh, experts available, and the deadline comes for the company to issue a decision and they let it pass without a word. So the grievance is deemed denied. Then the obligation falls to APA to advance the grievance to the pre-arbitration conference, which we call the PAC. And we do that. And at the PAC, management rarely resolves a presidential grievance. So then we must advance the grievance to the system board, the arbitration level. And another specific point of frustration is scheduling those presidential grievances for arbitration. We have a yearly schedule of arbitration slots, but management per the contract has to agree which grievances go into those particular slots. And management has taken the position that it cannot do arbitration because it lacks resources to engage both in section six and conduct arbitrations. Now, we all know management is obligated to honor its RLA obligation to make and maintain agreements with labor. And an element of maintaining a labor agreement is to resolve disputes via the agreed upon grievance process. So to date, executive management still uses the same pod of, of management personnel to address the section six table and address the arbitration table, and that is insufficient. So how do we meaningfully compress the lead time from filing that presidential grievance to getting a resolution? Uh, management needs to resolve the presidential grievances and not push and roll everything to arbitration. They need to staff it up so they have reasonable resources to cover both tables, section six and the arbitration table. And how do we get management to do it? Well, we need men uh, membership support, continued support, and APA leadership support. Captain Sitcher is all in and has indicated that grievances are a high priority for his administration. And uh, my team will get the resources we need to, to resolve the disputes. And I also can continue to advocate to APA about contractual lang uh, language that would uh, vest APA with the power to select which grievances will be heard in each arbitration slot with, of course, reasonable notice to management. So with that general backdrop, thinking about um, a Kerry presidential grievance 18033, you know, we're citing section 15N there. We're saying, hey, you're improperly utilizing your reserve pilots and reassigning those folks, and the company should be using a reassignment for line holders. Uh, we filed it uh, mid-May 2018. We had the appeal hearing. Uh, we presented evidence at the appeal hearing in October. Uh, in December, we didn't hear anything from, from the company, so we advanced it to, uh, to the pre-arbitration conference. 
Then in January, the company got around and they did issue an appeal hearing decision here. And they said, no, uh, just because Section 15 gives some protections to the uh, line pilot, it doesn't mean we cannot use reserve pilots for reassignment. And we just completely disagree with it. It's the theory of, well, the contract doesn't say I, I can't do that, is the, is the management mantra. Um, so we get it to submitted to system board in February of 2019. We get it to arbitration in December of 2019. Uh, we begin the five member arbitration. Uh, and at some point there's a break. Management approaches us to mediate this matter, which uh, after conferring with the client, um, the client agreed to do that. We engaged in multi-day mediation. We did not reach settlement terms. And as you know, this is part of our section six negotiation, how they use reserves, how they reassign. And at that point, um, uh, the strategy decision was to roll this issue into our section six negotiations. And that is where it's been since. I continue to uh, uh, applaud the people who do submit to us via the online grievance form, their experiences, so we can add those to our list. And um, uh, look forward to answering any other questions in that regard. Back to you, Chris. Thanks, Tricia. And uh, I see there's uh, Captain Sitcher and Captain Getcher have their hands up. I'm going to follow up with a question in the Q&A. You pretty much just answered this, but um, if we don't improve our grievance and enforcement language, any new contract isn't worth the paper it's written on. Will we be including improvements to the grievance process so the grievances aren't sitting there open for years and years? I, I know you just, again, pretty much answered that question, but anything to add? Yes. I completely agree with that statement. We could fix and get on paper the perfect reserve system, the perfect rescheduling system, the perfect DOTC RAS. And if I can't enforce that contract meaningfully, it, it's not truly not worth the effort. So you have to marry in. How can we improve our grievance process and put more teeth in here? And I've long time advocated and was particularly disappointed when the targeted approach did not include a particular fix to, to scheduling arbitrations, uh, because we need to have that power in, in the most limited sense. If we got one thing, it's when after we schedule and, and have our arbitration slots set, APA picks, okay, these grievances will be heard in this slot. And of course, give the company reasonable time, 90 days, so they know. They can subpoena people that they need, collect their documents, dedicate their resources accordingly. Um, we, we have to have that. And there's, there's many other, other fixes we could have, but that's the leading one, in my opinion. Thank you. Back to you, Chris. All right. Thanks, Tricia. Captain Sitcher, do you want to say something? Yeah, on, on the grievance process, Chris and I have put a lot of effort into fixing this. Uh, you know, management's tactics are the same across all the work groups. Just start back with that. We had the flight attendants over uh, over here yesterday, the negotiating team. I, I've spent a lot of time on the phone with Julie Hedricks, the president, and they're having the same issue of getting the grievances through. In, in fact, in a, in a new twist, uh, we found out that management filed a grievance against the flight attendants for grievances the other day. This was a new, a, new, uh, a new way the company can think of to push back on the grievances and basically just drag them off. But hey, at the end of the day, APA is not without fault. And we could absolutely improve the process that we have here. I ran on a platform talking about that. 
So uh, Trish right now is a single source of failure right here at APA. Uh, she's handling grievances for 14,000 pilots. It's just unacceptable. So we've interviewed three lawyers. We hired two of them last week. Uh, we're going to put them into the uh, dispute resolution department, and it's going to take a while to spin them up and, and get them ready to go. But uh, what their purpose is, is to help Trish so that we are better prepared to hear any grievance and to expedite the process. Um, you know, we haven't helped ourselves in the past, as you guys know. Uh, we, during Green December, remember that one that we're getting criticized for right now? Well, this was nothing like Green December. We sold back 14 presidential grievances in Green December, and they were simple things like uh, positive notice uh, of a 30-hour rest break in advance, you know? I mean, once once you go ahead and you withdraw without prejudice of grievance like that, uh, you know, or it can't be reinstated. So we basically allowed the company to violate the contract for a long time and then sold it back to them. And, and so there's been bad precedents set by APA over the course of our history, and we refuse to go down that path again. The answer is to go ahead and fix the grievance process that works, because actually under the RLA, that's where we're going to end up. They're going to put it back in the grievance process. And if it doesn't work and it's a slow, creaky, clinky process, then, then we're doomed. Um, so it, it has been an emphasis item. We've, we've formed a team that also goes ahead and kind of coordinates with the negotiating committee, because a lot of times these grievances end up at the negotiating committee level. This is something that's new to me, but if the company's going to go ahead and change a work rule, and there's a bunch of grievances open that pertain to that work rule, like let's say uh, recovery obligation of 4C, well, they want to we want to clear those grievances before the work rule goes away. So there's a there's a lot of work behind the scenes going on to make APA better, and uh, I don't know if it's going to work or not. I guess the verdict is still out. You guys will just have to stay tuned and see what happens. All right, thanks, Ed. Uh, Captain Detcher, did you want to say something to this? Yeah, I do. Thanks, thanks, Chris. Uh, so David Seymour is on record by saying that our language should be good enough, that we, that we don't need a mutually agreeable clause. I, I, I'm not so sure of that exactly, but uh, but I know we, we are working towards that, the language that, that we, we, we don't need to defend every sentence and period in, in our contract. Uh, how, how good would that be? I, you know, I want to I want to throw out some kudos to Trish. Uh, you know, you, you go back to her office, and 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 there are files upon files on her desk, and she makes sense of it. And uh, for those reps that have worked with her on whether whether it be Section Twenty Ones or or to the presidential grievances, she she's known as I mean I don't want to uh, uh, she's a she's she's a guard dog. She uh, is very good at her job. She needs help because it has just gotten out of hand, and and so so there you have it. I I I, uh, I, I think uh, Ed, Ed's on Ed's on the right track. Let's 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 beef up our our grievance committee if if we so need to with with the negotiated uh, contract that we have. I, I yield. And thank you. This is Trish Kennedy. Just for the record, I am a cat person, so I I, I growl, not not bark. Thank you. <laughs> Next up is uh, Captain Drew Coleman, scheduling chair. Good evening, everyone. It's Drew Coleman, obviously. We've got the TTS issue over the weekend of 4th of July. Um, I do want to 
put a nice sound out to the OAC operational analysis subcommittee of scheduling. They were forced to discover it and we were able to get that information and share it with the national officers and the board pretty much before they even woke up. Uh, we were able to keep that information uh, exceptionally timely and very accurate to the actual sequences, the number of pilots affected, and all the results, and even down to now the leg level, so that we're able to keep track of every single flight and make sure that we get the full 300% for these flights. Uh, once everything's done for the month, we will meet and uh, with the company and verify that every flight that, like I just said, is, is accounted for and every sequence is accounted for that was left whole. Uh, so again, thank you to John Wickham and uh, the team uh, IT, APIT for that. Uh, the company has not given us a reason as to what happened to the TPS. Uh, I, I'm not sure that they actually know, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, they just, it broke and it, it didn't work, or the TTOT, I'm sorry. Uh, we do have questions still concerning TTOT being locked down, and yes, the company has locked it down. Um, it's not any more forced red days than I, that I have seen recently. I did not check today, so I apologize before I got on this meeting. I should have checked, but uh, I've not seen an increase in the number of forced red days than what were already existing. Uh, as we all know, the vacancy is in the, uh, <laughs> it's out there, and the final should be released. We thought tomorrow, but now we just got notification while we're sitting in the meeting that it should be Friday that the final will be out. So the preliminary is out as everyone has seen it. But the final should be out this Friday. PBS closed today as well, and everything seems to be fine. On, and we're going to start processing that and looking forward to it on time. So far, a result of uh, that. Chris, did you have any other questions or anything for us? Yeah, there's two questions on here, Drew. Uh, first one, do you realize TTOT is still locked down? Yes, we do. And we, we monitor that every day, looking for the forced red days and the settings. Uh, unfortunately, they, they are set within the contractual means of the contract that we have. Um, so, yes, it is still locked down. All right, the second question, yeah. when will the four-day trips end? Um, it's funny, we, 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 we saw this question and we thought about it and we said, you know, one of the four-day trips ends after 30 minutes after debrief for 15 at this domestic. Um, but, you know, the four-day trips are the four-day trips. And again, we don't have any contractual means of controlling the distribution of, of sequences. That is something that uh, I will say Tim Hample has been working a lot on. We're doing a lot of analysis trying to find the right mix that might help us all. We have looked at United Deal that they, they've strung with the different percentages. And we're looking at different work rules, attempting to try to get uh, those rules built into the pairing generating software so that we are able to actually see what happens if we were to get something that we asked for. So that is something that we are actively working towards in this section six uh, abbreviated approach. All right, thanks, Drew. Next up we have uh, David Courier, Flight Time Duty Time Chair. Hi, Chris, thanks for the invitation. This is uh, LaGuardia First Officer David Courier, the National Flight Time Duty Time Committee Chairman. I wanted to talk uh, just a little bit about some of our recent fatigue trends and uh, some of the numbers we're seeing, how those relate to uh, what we get from our union peers across industry, and then a couple other things after that. So um, anyone who's out actively flying knows uh, from either their own world or talking to the people that they're working with that our uh, fatigue call numbers are obviously way up. We had a total of uh, 842 fatigue removals in June. Uh, an average June here at the beginning of the summer flying season would probably be about 350. So you can see we've, uh, um, you know, we're well over 100% above where we uh, 
uh, where we normally would be for June. Our highest numbers ever were in the uh, the 430 to 440 range, which happened in uh, would have been August of 17 and again in August of 19. Uh, we expect to see those numbers at that time of year a little bit more. It's the end of summer. Everybody's been flying their tails off. They're getting tired. Uh, you know, the, the, the numbers go up. But uh, to see this number in June is, uh, is pretty remarkable. Now we're uh, in constant contact with our peers over at uh, SWAPA and our ALPA peers at United and Delta and uh, Southwest and Delta are seeing very similar trends to the ones we're seeing. Uh, less so up at United, they, uh, they do certain things a little bit differently than we do, but uh, certainly fatigue calls are up at at least three of the four uh, legacy networks. Normally we see an operational, non-operational split that runs somewhere in the 70 to 75% operational, 25 to 30% non-operational. Uh, in this uh, present environment, where last month split was 61% operational, 39% non-operational. And it's not hard for us to distill the data and see what, uh, you know, what some of the drivers are for that. So, um, just in general, normally at this time of year, our two primary uh, fatigue removal drivers are, re uh, are IROPs, specifically reassignments, and hotel disturbances. Right now, we're seeing an increase in non the non-operational aspect of things. Uh, a couple things that primarily drive that are fatigue events that follow an over-guarantee or a premium pickup where the pilot uh, you know, flies on what would ordinarily be days free from duty and then uh, is uh, placing a fatigue call for their assigned reserve or, uh, or bid award trips. One thing that uh, we think that everyone should be aware of is that these, uh, those fatigue removals are almost universally considered non-operational in nature uh, by the, the company and through the adjudication system. And the reason for that is the company position would be that the, uh, you know, all pilots are granted days off. And if they choose to not use them for restorative purposes, then it would be considered uh, outside the company's control and i.e. a non-operational uh, fatigue removal subsequent to that. We've filed a uh, presidential grievance on this uh, quite some time ago. That is, uh, you know, part of the process that Ms. Kennedy just uh, eloquently described to everyone. Obviously, uh, all of the committees, uh, we're, we're prone to thinking that our grievances are the most important ones that are out there, but uh, you know, we, we realize that with a little introspection that that's not actually the case. So uh, that's one that we look forward to having heard and we'll certainly provide plenty of support for Tricia and her group when they're able to, to bring this one up in front of the, uh, the system board. The other thing that we see uh, a tremendous number of increase in and uh, immense frustration to our pilot group is uh, say you're a Dallas-based pilot, you fly up a four-day assignment and you come back in at uh, you know 10 or 11 o'clock on the morning of the fourth day, ready to go home, time to see your family, uh, you know, take the kids swimming, whatever it is that you want to do, you got your heart set on that. And all of a sudden you find out that that uh, leg down from St. Louis to Dallas, uh, that, that wasn't good enough for today. And now they want you to go to Phoenix and back or up to Chicago and back or worse yet, even adding an extra day. Um, we see a significant number of fatigue calls that are related to those extra uh, assignments that are being uh, 
being tacked onto pilots. So what we're doing right now is paying even more attention to collecting and collating this data. And then we will feed that onto the national officers and the board and we'll help them to understand exactly what our pilots are telling us through this data. And that will enable them to decide exactly what should be done with this and how to best uh, you know, factor this into our processes as an association going forward. Um, some of the events we're seeing now, uh, some of them are very, very complex. Anything that involves, uh, you know, the, the wide body flying and overseas stuff, if it relates to, uh, to part 117, some of those events can take a considerable amount of time for us to investigate. And uh, we put a lot of effort into making sure that we are getting the right answer to the membership. And we do it in as timely of a fashion as we can. We can be communicated with, as we've said before, in our uh, national communications uh, by email for uh, items that are important but not time critical. And we have, of course, the emergency helpline when uh, you know you're you're sitting in the aircraft and something has just happened that you think is a regulatory violation or you need help with uh, a fatigue issue that uh, you're not quite sure how to resolve. Uh, we there's only five of us, but uh, we do manage to answer 99% of those calls in real time. And the ones that we don't answer in real time, we're usually able to, to get a call back out to within a, a very short period of time, maybe 15 minutes or so. So we've seen a significant up, uptick in our direct interaction with membership. We appreciate that you, uh, you read our summer flying gouge that went out about a month ago. Uh, Thank you for the engagement. Thanks for letting us help you prospectively rather than retrospectively. It can be very difficult to unring the bell, but if we get a crack at it before it starts, then uh, so much the better. And with that, uh, I'll yield the floor back to, to you, Chris, and any questions you might have. Okay, thanks, David. I don't see any questions in there. <clears throat> Next up, contract compliance, Captain BJ West and Captain Jim Coey. Hey, uh, thanks for having us. Uh, as always, um, we uh, just want to start out with saying uh, thank you guys for attending the contract compliance training that we've been conducting on Zoom. Uh, that's been, I think, a huge success. I think it's been a huge part of uh, the data and a huge part of uh, the, the push towards a new contract that uh, uh, we've been seeing. So I'd like to think that we have a, at least a small part in that. Um, so with that said, we've been doing the Zoom uh, training classes two or three times a month. Uh, we want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to attend those. So we're going to continue to conduct those training courses until uh, demand tapers off to near zero uh, or until we're told otherwise. So uh, hopefully uh, in the next uh, few, six, eight, 10 months, whatever it takes, uh, we'll have a new contract uh, to educate you on. Uh, but until then, we'll educate you on the old one and make sure that uh, you've got multiple opportunities to attend one of those Zoom training courses. Uh, outside of that, uh, kind of the soup du jour for us uh, are our reassignments. Uh, and that's really primarily <clears throat> the bulk of what we're seeing and dealing with right now. Uh, the summer flying ramp up and the associated problems we've had with the summer flying have created a multitude of reassignments. Uh, the creativity uh, that scheduling is coming up with is, is uh, quite awesome. Uh, their newest tricks basically are to reassign you, uh, you know, on your next to last day of flying uh, where, you've, where you've had a long overnight and uh, they reassign you to an earlier departure and they, they do so using uh, 
uh, ACARs to notify you. So unfortunately, they are valid reassignments, uh, but kudos to the creativity points to uh, garner extra flying out of a, a pilot in those situations. Anecdotally, uh, in most situations where we see stuff like that, it is where rig uh, lives on the trip. Um, we don't have the data right now to back it up. Uh, it's a, a piece that we want to get uh, so that we can give that data to uh, the negotiating committee. Uh, and we'll, we'll work with scheduling to uh, try and rope that data in. But um, usually we see more reassignments occur where uh, rig time would encompass that that uh, paid time anyway. So uh, we tentatively believe that the company has a new search uh, or has created a search profile that uh, tells them the cheapest option uh, in essence uh, to get uh, free or reduced labor costs. Um, cancellation and, and notifications uh, are kind of the other um, order of the day. Uh, we deal with those and reassignments. Almost 90% of what we do is that exclusively. Um, and I, I won't delve into the specifics or the nuanced arguments right now on when they need to notify you, et cetera, of a cancellation. Uh, but needless to say, we've got multiple uh, documents, flowcharts, and guides online to help you out with that. Uh, and then we want to ensure, again, that you take the, the Zoom training course so that you're more familiar with uh, 4C or recovery obligation uh, than you are now. Um, which leads us to the last point I want to make today. The hotline uh, call volume has been extraordinarily high, um, higher than we've ever seen it, um, to the point where after 7 p.m. Uh, when admin closes, uh, we are starting to get um, uh, calls almost right away, 701, 702, and then we're pushing 40 to 50 calls a night. Um, on weekends and holidays, we, we vastly exceed that. Uh, so I want to ensure that everybody understands that the point of the hotline is for operationally urgent uh, phone calls, emergencies, if you will. Uh, these are the phone calls that, uh, hey, I'm live in the field and scheduling has given me a, uh, an illegal assignment, an erroneous assignment, and I have talked to them and I can't get them to remove it. And I need, I need immediately, immediate help now and I can't wait until tomorrow morning at 0700. Um, and even then, there are going to be coverage gaps where we just can't get to you at night. Uh, there's only six national contract compliance committee members, and we are tasked with maintaining uh, staffing to cover that phone, that phone line uh, off hours, but it just becomes really difficult, uh, as Captain Sitcher pointed out, with the lack of uh, PU. Uh, so our resources are stretched thin. If you can at all wait until uh, admin is back in the building or until at least normal business hours to call, uh, it will uh, greatly help us uh, cover the pilots that that do have those operationally urgent issues that need the calls now. So if you've got a pay question or a, hey, how do I bid my vacation question or a PBS question, those are not calls that need to be made uh, to the hotline. They, they can wait until the next business day. Um, and so emergencies only uh, when you're live in the field. Um, I'll give Jim a minute to talk if you want to talk. Okay, I got Jim. nothing. Hey, uh, Jim Coey here, uh, contract compliance, uh, West Coast guy. So if you call the hotline late at night, uh, I'm usually the guy out there, uh, BJ and uh, Jason, uh, Chris Paul and uh, Brandon are all uh, Midwest or East Coast types. So the uh, when the phone line rings between midnight and eh, I don't know, 4 a.m., it uh, gets a little tough depending on uh, what time zone we're in. So back to what BJ said, just a reiteration that uh, – you know, admin answers all the questions throughout the daytime. And if we can wait till bankers hours, definitely please uh, uh, wait till that time. Uh, I'll get the latest ones we can. And then the other guys, the East Coast guys try to pick up the early morning ones. 
But yeah, the urgent calls only are, are kind of the big deal. And uh, like I said, the call volume is going up a lot. Um, actually, specifically the last two nights, it's actually been pretty reasonable. So uh, anyway, thank you for using your discretion on that. And uh, like I said, we're always here to help and, um, and glad to do it. Same with emails, by the way, too. Emails is up. They don't always get answered instantly, but we do get to them as quick as we can. Hey, and I'll be giving a a minute here before you go into this uh, contract question. So for those of you who aren't looking at your screen, there's a poll uh, that's popped up. Uh, take a quick second to answer that. And, and while they're doing that, BJ, I'm going to ask you a question that came up in Q&A. I was scheduled for a landing sim during my days off instead of displacing me from my from my next trip. What is our obligation to go to a landing sim during days off for the contract? Uh, your only obligation is to have five days of notice uh, from the company, and then uh, you are you are entitled to your PBS awarded schedule. So if you are unqualified, the company can move DFPs. Um, however, comma uh, if you are still qualified, they cannot take those DFPs without your consent. So um, you know, if they contact you, uh, you can just simply tell them, Hey, I don't, I don't consent to flying or training rather on my DFPs and you need to remove a trip, uh, to do so. Actually. All right, go ahead with the contract question. And, uh, as you're, as you're given the answer, I'll pop up the results of the poll. Great. All right. Uh, hopefully everybody can see this now. If, uh, if you're not again, looking at your screen, turn around, look at it, vote real quick, uh, may a reserve pilot Overnight in domicile mid-sequence. Very simple. Very yes or no. Yes or no question. Very simple question. Uh, but we get a lot of phone calls on it, oddly enough. And with the creative uh, schedules that scheduling is uh, trying to push right now, we see this quite a bit. The answer is a decided no. Uh, when you when you terminate in domicile for whatever reason because the next day is flying canceled or scheduling decided to pull you off of it or whatever, <laughs> a uh, reserve pilot uh, has no obligation to continue that sequence uh, downline. So you need to be processed in accordance with the rest of 15J, meaning that you uh, rest in domicile, you get your domicile rest, which is contractual and uh, doesn't always necessarily run concurrently with FAR rest. And, and then uh, you go back into the hopper, so to speak. So they put you back into the long call or short call hopper, and you are processed as is every other reserve pilot. If that sequence that fell apart or that was reassigned or whatever then needs to be covered, it needs to be covered through the normal filling of open time process. And also, Jim, Jim here, FYI, the uh, MODs and schedulers are very good at doing this. If you get an accidental overnight in domicile, as a reserve pilot, they're very good about removing you and saying, oh, our bad, sorry, um, you know, they'll fix it. And they put you in domicile rest and off you go. So to the uh, majority of people who answered the correct way, thank you. For the other half that didn't, please sign up for the eight-hour contract compliance education course. <laughs> and uh, FO Jason Gaston, DFW Vice, uh, you want to throw something in? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, just uh, want to say thanks to BJ and Jim. Um, just to add a little something, um, I try to recommend to, to most of the Dallas pilots that have contract questions, all of our bases should have contract compliance reps. Dallas has an email address that you can find on our domicile homepage. For those less than operationally urgent questions, if you shoot your domicile, contract compliance means those questions. They are an excellent resource as well, and that can kind of uh, reduce some of the workload for our national volunteers. That's all. Thanks. Thank you. Uh BJ or Jim, you guys have anything else to add before we move on? Jim's nope. done. That was it. Thank you, guys. Excellent. Thanks, guys. All right, next up, Captain Mark Erickson, Compass Subcommittee Chair.
Hello, uh, Mark Erickson uh, with Compass Project. Just a couple of numbers here. We've sponsored uh, 1,250 pilots since the beginning of the year. Since September, we've sponsored uh, 1,825 pilots. Uh, out of the 1,825, we've had uh, 200 female pilots. Um, an interesting statistic is uh, 55 pilots out of the 1,825 have left for uh, other positions, 19 with Delta, 13 with United, four with FedEx, and three to Southwest. Everything, everybody else is uh, miscellaneous. Uh, new hire is waiting about a month between NDOC and training, and we are having issues with OE and consolidation due to uh, qualified Czech airmen. Compass Project had 89,000 hits on our website between January and June of this year. We're the second behind hotels. When someone comes to our website, they spend about a minute and 42 seconds, and in, on hotels, they spend about 11 seconds. Um, we're in uh, kind of in a fatigue situation. We're doing 45 pilots per, per, uh, per week, per month. Uh, we could really use some more volunteers. It's the easiest way to get involved uh, in, in the union for volunteering. We have an online training course, and you'll expect to spend maybe an hour um, a month helping uh, you know new hire pilots, and you kind of see what the next generation is thinking uh, when you establish a re uh, relationship. We also have some positions opening up up in Compass. When you fill out the form to become a, a Compass sponsor, there is a place to say that you have some extra interest, and uh, we'll find a, a position for you in Compass. Thank you, Chris. Um, one more thing: our QR code is there. If you'd like to become a sponsor, you can go to our automatic sign up. Uh, via the QR code. Thank you, Chris. Excellent. Thanks, Mark. All right. Negotiating committee. Uh, if you guys uh, have anything that you want to provide as an update, uh, go for it. Otherwise, uh, we'll just jump into questions. Yeah, this is Greg Shaman, member of the AP Negotiating Committee. Uh, as you're aware, the company provided a uh, revised comprehensive proposal back on June 29th. Uh, after United had publicly come out with their details, that information has been published out online. Um, and then earlier this week, the company uh, took a lot of that information and actually put it into more formalized term sheets and or proposed draft contractual language. So we have that on our side of the table and we're working through that and we continue to work through um, issues that had already been on the table, such as section 4C sequence protection and section 15 filling of open time. So that's where things kind of stand as a general update. And then whenever you're ready, we can get into the questions. All right, first question. If APA supports a market-based cash balance plan similar to Delta and the following retro language stands, a one-time retro payment for January 1st, 2020 through date of signing. Uh, and Greg, I'm just going to let you, can you, do you have the screen there? Yeah, we can see it. Yeah, if you want to just read and then answer each one of those individually, and then I'm, when we jump onto the next ones, I'll read them. All right, sure. So uh, is the retro payment pensionable and eligible for the company to find contribution retirement funding? Yes, it would be um, pensionable. Um, can 100% of this payment go to a newly formed MBCBP? The answer to that is going to be no, because once a deal is ratified, uh, it's going to take uh, a period of time um, before we can get the determination letter sent to the IRS, and then it's going to take a period of time for them to make that ruling. And so the earliest we would probably see a uh, MBCBP go live 
would be sometime in 2024 or even beyond. And that assumes that we actually can get to a new CBA and get it ratified here, you know, within the next handful of months. So the answer to that question is no. Uh, and then can the payments at the pilot's discretion result in a like value options grant so that the pilot would have the ability to exercise and hold shares long enough for their value to become subject to long-term capital r rates? Interesting question. Uh, we're assuming that you mean that uh, stock is an option, uh, is a form of retro payment, and as of now, any retro pay is going to be solely in American U.S. dollars, not stock. All right, thanks. Uh, next question. Why are we only seeking a two-year contract so to do this all in all over again before the ink really dries? And uh, board members, if you want to weigh in on these, feel free and raise your hand. Well, I thought this question was for NOBOD. Are you wanting to answer from the negotiating committee on this uh, question? Uh, so I see uh, Captain Dave Powell from Chicago. Go ahead. Yeah, appreciate it. <clears throat> Listen, this is informed by just experience, which is to say, I mentioned earlier in a, in a comment on another question that section six is is frustratingly long by its nature, 24 to 36 months on average. We, we'd love to change that, but <clears throat> uh, the company holds a lot of the cards. And so we, it, the, it, I understand the, the point of the question, which is capture as much value as possible, lock it in. Um, but but we, we lived through a five-year JCBA and now we're three years into section six, so we are frustrated, right? We have contractual provisions. Frankly, on the legacy A side, we, we've got stuff from our, our, our concessionary 2003 deal we haven't fixed yet. But the point is we're eight years post JCBA and there's a lot about the JCBA that, that we don't, we've come to not like, right? Uh, 4C sequence protection. We didn't have sequence protection legacy A before this, but we've come to realize that the, that the, the current version uh, that we agreed to has a lot of problems, needs to be fixed. And the longer your deal, the longer it takes to fix the things that don't go well. So the idea originated uh, earlier in the pandemic was, you know, get in there, capture value while we can. And I think that's always the right approach. You fix your, you address your needs, you capture, uh, capture it as quickly as you can. 18 months after, if you're in a two-year deal, 18 months after that, you're you're back in Section 6 and you're fixing more things. Uh, interestingly, though, please note that in our Section 6 opener and proposal and what's actively on the table envisions uh, three pay raises over a two-year deal. So it is not as if it's two years and nothing. It is two years, potentially a third pay raise uh, to act as, to, to some extent as a uh, incentive for the company to to to, to to come to a deal sooner rather than later. So that's Dave Powell's opinion. I appreciate the opportunity to, to weigh in. All right, thank you, Captain Powell. Next up, uh, we have uh, Jim Scully, the chair of the Czech Airmen Committee. So uh, he, he may want to weigh, on, weigh in on this. What are the thoughts on the creation of a new instructor position? Uh, and this is something for those who are not aware that uh, <clears throat> the company has proposed in their past of, of 12B regarding the Czech Airmen. Uh, Jim Scully. Yes, yes. The, uh, the company in the recent proposal has, has um, created a, a position called instructor pilot, IP. And uh, the, the question is, uh, well, how did the Czech airmen feel about this, this new uh, possible position, the instructor pilot? So, well, you know, Czech airmen are very concerned about the new instructor pilot position being a potential threat 
to check airmen jobs. And it is the APA board of directors who decides on the direction of negotiations. But honestly, Czech airmen do not want to entertain the idea of this new instructor pilot position uh, without appropriate protections for the Czech airmen group. Um, thanks. Back to you. All right, thanks, Jim. Next question. Uh, back to the negotiating committee. Is there any way to write into the contract that upon expiration, uh, if there is no new contract, we get at least a cost of living increase tied to a metric like CPI? All right, so our, our current proposal for compensation includes a pay increase at the amendable date. Uh, we also have a snap up provision in there so that if our comparators leapfrog us, uh, we would receive a snap up. And we've also had talks uh, about a performance-based raise that would continue post amendable date based on the company's financial performance. Thank you. Regarding the reinstated LOA 2201 trips, how will premium be paid if a fatigue call results due to operational issues? So uh, pay is gonna, for a fatigue call is gonna be, uh, continue to be handled in accordance with the JCBA. It's section 15K5 that deals with that. Um, obviously, if you fly any legs on one of those trips, you're going to be paid the 200% uh, premium, the triple pay for the legs that you fly on that sequence prior to the fatigue call. Um, however, uh, although you might get paid for the remainder of the sequence, depending on if they deem it operational or non-operational, you're not going to get paid the premium for the legs that are not flown after your fatigue call. That's how it works today. Nothing is going to change in that regard. Next question, why do we have recovery obligation? Can we look at other airlines, including our regional partners to improve from their contract work tools? All right, so we didn't have recovery obligation, nor did we have sequence protection in our contract prior to 2012. And when we got sequence protection in 2012, which is the first time we ever had it here on the level that we did do now, um, the trade-off for that was that the company got some form of recovery obligation, which is a standard in the industry. Um, we can get rid of recovery obligation tomorrow, but with that agreement, it's going to come the elimination of sequence protection. Um, our, legacy, our, our comparators, uh, specifically Delta and United, they have recovery obligation. Um, but we have made significant improvements um, during the negotiations. The only major area of disagreement right now is modifying the length of uh, the actual replacement flying windows. Um, and we are pretty far along in the language writing process, making amendments and deletions to our current book Q&As and new Q&As that have been mostly agreed to. And uh, we're trying to bring this uh, section to an AIP and a conclusion as part of an overall TA. So, but there will be significant improvements over current book, but there is gonna be some form of recovery obligation going forward in order to maintain sequence protection. All right, thanks. Uh, next question, why did our BOD instruct the negotiating committee to agree with AA that LTD improvements will only be on the date of signing going forward? Uh, so I'm actually going to jump in here and clarify something. Uh, the BOD didn't instruct the negotiating committee to agree with American about the current state of LTD improvements. The BOD only directed the negotiating committee to pursue improvements to LTD and the current provision uh, that, that has that as a prospective in nature has not been approved by the BOD. Uh, uh, Greg, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say the, the question starts with an inaccurate statement. 
the BOD has not instructed the NC to only make LTD improvements on a go-forward basis for new LTD cases. Um, issues and changes related to current LTD plans are still a subject of negotiations. Um, we have obtained agreements with the company at the table on the new LTD plan, but there's been no AIP signed on that yet. So pilots currently on LTD, and I believe there's at least six different plans that pilots may be under, um, they're not going to move to a new LTD plan. However, as we just noted above um, when I was speaking, we're actively exploring changes to current LTD plans, which are still a subject of negotiations. Um, we've provided the BOD with a list of possible options that may improve current LTD plan benefits, and um, we're going to continue to move forward on the issue with board guidance. All right, thanks, Greg. Uh, and the proposed language, reserve reassignments will be paid at premium, including added flying at the end of the sequence. And we have the option of declining the added flying. All right, so the current proposal, which has been agreed to in concept by the company, is that um, <clears throat> all reassignments pay a 50% premium, and including for reserve pilots, it would be paid on top of your guarantee. Uh, as you know, current book only pays the premium for a reassignment beyond the original sequence footprint, and if a reserve pilot does get reassigned, they don't pay them any premium whatsoever. So that is going to be fixed going forward. The other issue is what they call added flying, otherwise known as appended flying. That's a totally different issue, and it's actually uh, a, currently a subject of APA presidential grievance uh, P19-12. So appended flying is when you have flown your sequence is scheduled and then the company throws a turn or tries to add like an extra day of flying onto your schedule. So that's an issue uh, which will need to follow the normal grievance process, though we are obviously looking at options within section six as well. Um, but I'll just say in generally, look, as a pilot, you're required to assess your fitness for duty prior to each flight. And if you do not believe you can safely complete the flight, you're required to call in fatigued. Right, next question. What is the status of, a, of the most recent AA proposal? Have we countered AA's offer? All right, so as I briefly explained uh, at the beginning, um, the company passed an updated comprehensive proposal at the end of June, then ISM publicly announced it and published on the AA pilots. Uh, then this week, the company's negotiating team passed more detailed you know, term sheets and proposed contractual language. And so we're in the process of evaluating these proposals and working on drafting counters, as well as trying to move forward on the other issues that were already on the table during negotiations. Our TTS and TPOT systems are so restrictive uh, as to be unusable. My understanding is that Spirit has a required minimum percentage of green or tradable trips. Can we negotiate some level of control over open time limits so that the system systems actually help us with scheduling flexibility? Yeah, so, I mean, I know today, in fact, the scheduling committee <clears throat> met with the company, and I know some of our negotiators were there, and these are issues that are at the forefront, obviously, for the scheduling committee as well as the negotiating committee. And uh, um, we have some proposals on the table to try and hopefully fix some of these issues. Uh, but yes, we're completely aware. And I know scheduling, we work with them extensively. They're working night and day, you know, trying to solve some of these issues, but it's not gonna be an overnight fix. It's gonna take time, unfortunately. Why aren't we negotiating for easy quality of life improvements such as windows slash aisle deadheads, United type hotel contract language D2 travel for LTD pilots? Well, I, I would say that what some people might think are easy quality of life improvements, so to speak, 
It's not necessarily easy to obtain it at the bargaining table. Uh, as an example, the United Type Hotel contract language, that was a result of a grievance settlement over there. Um, but we have reached agreement on several quality of life improvements during these negotiations. Uh, for example, there is improved hotel language. There is now premium pay for all reassignments. And for example, with sequence protection, there's now going to be one single time frame for the assignment or replacement flying, which improves the predictability for pilots. Okay, uh, so what we're going to do is there's a bunch of questions in the Q&A. Uh, I'm actually going to hold those to the end. We've got a hard-ish out at about 6 p.m. We can keep going a little bit beyond that. We'll try to get as many of the Q&A questions, but I want to go through the uh, uh, this 2201 stuff, and there are some pre-submitted questions in that as well. Um, <clears throat> to start off with here, the uh, since the trip trade event happened, we've had a steady stream of feedback um, since that occurred. There are I talked about the hundreds of sound offs that, uh, that went through. I talked about, you know, I, I read every single one of them. So before we get into the q and I, I wanna highlight a couple of things that led up to the LOA approval. Um, and that is the communication that went out and um, the concept of, of leverage. And none of this is indicative of my support or opposition for the LOA. It's strictly laying out some, uh, some data and facts. Uh, to start off with, for anybody who's not aware, I'll kind of quickly go through what happened again. So Saturday, July 2nd, there was an issue with TTOT. Uh, 2,400 sequences dropped through the month of July. That morning, APA immediately started to research what happened. We got the negotiating committee involved, scheduling committee, legal, national officers, board of directors. So a lot of people working on this. Just prior to one central, we had national comm going out, said, hey, we're aware of this. We're pursuing a solution to, uh, to benefit the pilot group. Well, shortly after that, the company began to extra contractually return those trips to the pilot schedules. And that started with July 6th. So that changed the dynamic of the situation. Uh, so we increased our efforts in uh, getting the data to figure out what was going on. We talked to the subject matter experts uh, to get President Sitcher ready for a call with um, uh, Robert Isom that he would have uh, later that evening. And in the second time in that day, we sent out a national update to the pilots just prior to, uh, to midnight. So. Over the following days, uh, the board got ready for an emergency meeting. The SMEs um, continued to engage with their counterparts over at AA, and we communicated the updates to the pilot group. And our initial guidance to the pilot groups that had those reinstated trips that started on the 6th of July was that it was their decision as, their, as to whether they wanted to fly the trips. On Monday the 4th, we pulled a list of all 96 pilots who had reinstated trips on the 6th of July. So the first day that those trips were reinstated. We took that list, we gave it to the domicile reps and we provided them with talking points to advise the affected pilots of their options for the extra contractually reinstated trips. Now, these are advisory in nature, we were not directive, but in other words, we said, hey, this is what's gonna happen if you fly it, and this is what may happen if you don't. So next day, uh, Tuesday, July 5th, this is the day prior to these uh, first reinstated trips, we sent out a national Com, it reiterated our previous guidance and it said it's important to note that pilots are, are under no obligation to fly any sequence that was added to their schedules by management. Next, and kind of for the sake of this discussion, the final day was Wednesday, July 6th. So again, this is when the board is going into session to vote on the LOA. It is also the first day of the reinstated sequences. We had 96 affected sequences that were supposed to start that day. Of those 96 reinstated trips, 31 pilots declined the flying and they initially took a no-show or a missed trip. The other 65 pilots opted to fly their, their trips as scheduled. 
for the 31 decline trips, the, the, uh, the company broke a lot of them up. They signed them to reserves. They awarded them out as premium. And so I give that summary, not at all as an indictment of the pilots who flew their trip, but it's important. Now I come back to the original point that I made at the beginning of this, which is leverage. And a point that was made in a lot of these feed, the feedback that you received, uh, I said I was... Sorry about that. Um, I, I read all the sound offs. It was over 500. Um, and one of the points was that pilots were saying we have tremendous leverage. And there was folks that were saying this is the greatest amount of leverage I've ever seen. So recognize that before the board voted on this on the afternoon of July 6th, we could see that a lot of these trips are being flown and the company was in large part covering the ones that were declined. So as you're watching this from the outside, it might seem like we had a tremendous amount of leverage, but real time as we're coming down to the wire, there was factors in play that showed that the perceived leverage wasn't as much as it may have seen. Uh, so with that, uh, we'll get into the Q&A. Oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of myself there. Um, the one thing I'll throw out here is the, uh, there, there was a, a question in the chat that said, we didn't address enough of the questions last week. And what we were doing last week was just going over the LOA and we said, you know, we would, we would reserve the questions more for the board to this week. So that LOA uh, uh, Zoom is posted. It's on the quick links, videos, audios, and files. It's the one at the top until tomorrow when this gets posted. All right, so before we go into the, the Q&A, I've got uh, a couple hands up here. Captain Sitcher, go ahead. Make sure you unmute, Ed. Unmute, Ed. Yeah, okay. Uh, I just want to first crack at the uh, questions coming down on the LOA, Chris. Uh, that, that's all. So okay. uh, I see that you've got them queued up. Gotcha. But Cap Pal, do you want to speak to something generally or we uh, first crack at a question? You know, I, I wanted to speak generally, but but I don't want to delay the call here. Uh, so I'll I wanted to speak a little bit to the leverage piece, but I, but I, I think in, in an effort to just help you get through the questions, I'll I'll stand down for now. Okay, thanks. Uh, the board voted to voted down the holiday pay unanimously because they said they didn't want any more Band-Aid LOAs. How is this LOA any different? Uh, Captain Citra, I got you up first. Yeah, I, I believe the questions referring to this this recent Christmas. Uh, December holiday pay that was proposed over the last uh, last year. And if, if I'm correct, look, there, it's important to look at the similarities and the differences. The similarities are they offered holiday pay and it was a short-term fix. All it did was get us through that holiday. There were no long-term immediate gains that we got, the same things we got during this one. That's why the board turned it down and I was on the board at the time. All we did was get them through Christmas because Thanksgiving had already passed. They didn't even give us what they were given the flight attendants. And there was some question over whether or not we were even gonna get positive space. That fixed the company's short-term problem. In this agreement, we got an immediate holiday pay. Even though it's not the holiday pay I wanted, it's not the holiday pay I blasted, it's not the holiday pay we pushed across the table. We got it now, it starts now guys, and we can work on section six to get it improved. The premium offset starts now. Those guys that are flying those triple pay pieces, those trips, it's not going to get taken away if they get sick later on in the month. And God knows they're probably flying so much they just might get sick. And, and also, you know, this sliding premium that wasn't offered over Christmas. So, so please, you know, before you, you state a question like that, you know, look at the differences, not just the similarities. Yeah, we voted it down them and we accepted it now. It's not because the board changed their mind. It's because we got a better deal out of this. We put $100 million into your pocket. That's the difference. I'm going to let uh, maybe some of the board members 
talk about this because there's a lot of other people that were on the board at the time too. So I, I will yield. Thank all right, I don't, uh, Captain Gamble, Boston Chair. Yeah, I, well said, Ed. I mean, I also think that uh, lessons learned can be a part of this too. So, uh, you know, the holiday payback in November and December, you know, there was a reason why we voted in the direction we did. Um, after the fact, um, we need to actually create um, a, a resolve when we have, when we turn down a letter of agreement of that sort. Um, and, and actually push for contractual gains. Um, we did that in this LOA. And it, it's, it's not perfect, but it never will be. I mean, I'd rather take um, a base hit or a double instead of zero. And, and, and many times we, we put ourselves in a position where we, we don't get any gains. And we know that this, uh, you know, the pilots are out there flying the SD trips that were put back in the trips. I haven't seen anybody drop one yet, other than for the fact of uh, a couple of people had COVID and, uh, you know, great for the people who actually picked it up because it, it ties itself to the sequence, not to the pilot. So there was a great gain there for a lot of, of, of value. And again, value comes in different forms in different ways. And sometimes it's with the pilots that, that you know, and these pilots are on lightsaber that it auto drops, they got the value. Um, later on, there'll be values for some, for others. So, I mean, we always have to keep trying to find that value as we go forward. And I thank Ed for the for the efforts that he put forth to to, to make sure that this um, was articulated to management at the upper level. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Captain Gamble. Next question: <clears throat> Why we're not taking more legal action against the company injunctions, and are they within the status quo? Ed, did you want to? Uh, hit on that one, or maybe Jim Clark for the second part of that. Yeah, go ahead, Ed. You know, let let uh, I, I'd like to uh, go ahead and let let Jim answer the majority of this question. I can also say that we are looking into legal actions against the company, but I, I go back to what I I said the first time I talked about the RLA. I mean, we're fighting an uphill battle with the RLA, guys. It, it's not made to benefit labor. It's made to delay these, these kind of uh, agreements. It's made to maintain status quo in interstate commerce. And the bar is very low for the company or management to prove that we're not complying and that, that we're, we have an illegal job action. And the bar is very high for the union to prove that the, the management team can't do what they're doing. So I'm, I'm gonna defer to Jim. Jim, are you up? Jim Clark? I am. Please uh, give us a little more about you know, filing an injunction against the company for all these different contractual, I guess, uh, liberties that they're taking. Sure. So um, I guess to, to start directly with that point, the, the RLA is, is set up in such a way that just the basic primer on it is there, there are two types of disputes that are recognized under the RLA, a major dispute and a minor dispute. Contractual disputes are by definition minor disputes. They are not uh, disputes that can be uh, can be resolved uh, or litigated in federal court. They are exclusively within the province of the grievance and arbitration uh, system that is set up under the RLA and under our contract. Uh, as we recently saw when we did file a, uh, a lawsuit seeking an injunction against the company on the issue of the seat fillers, uh, the company's plan to utilize volunteer pilots as seat fillers on day 10 evaluations in, 
in lieu of Czech Airmen. Uh, we did litigate that issue. And uh, that issue was ultimately determined by the judge in, uh, in the Northern District of Texas uh, as being a minor dispute. It was uh, a case that we did not, we didn't lose on the merits. Uh, what the judge determined was he agreed with the company's position that we were essentially arguing over the terms of the contract. And as such, he had no jurisdiction to entertain our claim that jurisdiction rested exclusively within the grievance and arbitration uh, world in which the RLA is structured around. Um, that is the struggle that we have with all of these issues. Um, we, we are limited in that uh, we cannot go to federal court every time the company does something differently than they may have done it before. Um, yes, in, in common parlance, that would constitute a change in the status quo because they're doing something different than they did yesterday. Um, but in the legal parlance, that, that does not rise to the level of a status quo violation such that you can go to court and seek an injunction if uh, the basis for whatever the company is doing is uh, founded in the contract. So, um, the the fact that we are not going to federal court every time the company does something is not because we do not look at each and every one of these uh, these unilateral changes, unilateral actions to assess whether or not there is a basis to make a claim that it is a major dispute and therefore uh, there is jurisdiction within the federal courts to address it. Uh, we do that each and every time. Uh, the problem is, quite frankly, the law and the case law and the jurisdiction in which we're in, uh, it's, it's a very high bar, as Ed said, to, uh, to establish that, uh, you know, that what the company does is a major dispute, which then allows us to seek uh, injunctive relief. Uh, it's like I said, it's not because we're not looking to, to do it where we can. We, we did it, as you know, with the seat fillers um, and we weren't successful in convincing the court that it, it had jurisdiction to address that issue. Um, but we are continuing to to review all of these issues and look at other ways where maybe we we do have an avenue in the federal court system to to address some of these things. But Again, it, 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 we are limited by the confines of the RLA and the case law interpreting the RLA in terms of what we can actually go into court over. All right, thanks, Jim. Uh, Captain Powell from Chicago, did you have anything you want to add? I, I do, I do. I just want to add to this and sort of tie it back into the whole debate about our discussion uh, earlier about leverage and the LOA. Uh, Jim, Jim gave you an, an excellent primer on 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 what the RLA does to us and how it handicaps us. Here's to the myth of the leverage that this event supposedly gave us. If we can tell our pilots not to do those trips, they don't do them and the company has no recourse, then it's extraordinary leverage. But that's not how the world is. That's not what the RLA grants us. We had two issues to contest. The extra contractual restoration of trips onto pilot schedules that they had legally dropped through no fault of their own. And as a result of the company's failure, which they have acknowledged. And secondly, 
uh, uh, an extra contractual premium, frankly, beyond what at least prior to July 6th, the, the, uh, the, the JCBA allowed, which was only a 50% premium. Absent a negotiated agreement or settlement on the July 2 trip trade event, we have to go to court in the same way the company goes to court. We have to go to court to challenge on those two points that I made, the ex- those two extra contractual issues, the restoration of the trips and, and, and the premium. As Jim said, similar to the seat filler piece, we very likely lose uh, on the thing that's most glaring for all of us, which is they're turning right around and putting trips back on schedules when pilots legally drop them. We, we lose on that. But we win, unfortunately, on the piece regarding the premium pay, because that is a unilateral change in a rate of pay, which crosses a clear bright line under the RLA and, and equals a status quo violation and therefore a major dispute. The problem is the remedy for that, quote, win on the two issues for us is that we have to then claw, force the company to claw back 150, you know, three quarters of the 200% premium they were offering uh, absent a deal, an agreement, uh, because it was outside the RLA. So we take money from our pilot pockets and we don't get to stop them from, from doing what they did unilaterally uh, if we go to court. So w- there was limits to our leverage. I believe we wisely understand the world as it is. Not uh, not how uh, how some folks want it to be, and we struck again a, a deal that on balance is that Ed has spoken forcefully and I think eloquently to something that was uh, we made something meaningful out of out of not much. So I just wanted to add my sort of board member view. Which Dave, led Dave to can, I, can I please piggyback on that because I think that you know you, you gave a good explanation, a long explanation. Look, we I we, I, I, we, I never offer short explanations. And I apologize. <laughs> Look at that point. And, and believe you me, guys, we went up, down, and all around shopping this around legally. The, the answers we were getting were, the judge is going to say it's not a major dispute. You're going to be forced to grieve it. And when you grieve it, the, flip, the trips will have already been flown. The only thing left is to take that non-contractual pay away from your pilots. So we're going to be in a position where we're grieving to take the triple pay away from our pilots. Thank you very little. That was, that was the position we were in. And we were we were very close to having to actually execute on that. We didn't have any other avenues left. And Ed, who on this call likes to hear flying grief? Nobody, right? We're trying to be demonstrative, uh, and I think we did a good job. But it gets to the to, to the question that we're addressing is why don't we do it more often? It's an extraordinarily high bar for labor to meet to just take the company to court and, and win your issue in court. We have to be smart about it. We can't be frivolous about it. I yield. Uh... FO Paul Diario, Philly chair, first time speaker. Go ahead. Thanks, Chris. I just wanted to chime in on the on the yellow wings. Uh, I, I don't see much of a difference with what we did in um, November um, when we said we're not going to do have all this band-aid approach. You want to fix these problems? Uh, we'll do it within a complete agreement. I get the uh, part about you know, taking the trip off, putting it back on the 300%. One of the main problems I've had, I have with this LOA, is it went beyond that. What did we do? We allowed the company to increase the premium for the month of months of July and August. And why did they do that? Because they recognized they have a staffing problem. If they could have paid regular premiums for July and August, they never would have put this in there. Uh, and as you know, we took it out for the month of August and they put it right back in and it was okay. So putting aside the pilots getting 300%, one of the main problems I have with this agreement is we uh, allowed them, we put the band-aid on the staffing for the month of July and August. We never should have done that. If they want to increase the 200% permanently, they can do that uh, when we get a, a complete contract. So 
Um, so, so give them relief in July and August and get them through the summer months, uh, to me, was an absolute uh, failure on the part of APA. We should have said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're not going to help you get through your staffing crisis for the busy summer months. Right here. Yeah, Paul, let me let me just add a little, Paul, th thanks for the, the counter opinion, and we need the counter opinion. I could have filed a presidential grievance on this one, and I didn't. I let it go through the board. We debated it. It 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 uh, the good and the bad came out in the debate. But at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself, how many more guys are they going to entice by premium, by an increased premium that they're not already enticing? We've got board members flying for premium right now. What are you going to do? You're going to double the premium and double the amount of people that show up? There's a limited amount of of juice left in that turnup. They're squeezing it as hard as they can. The, the guys are running about as hard as they can. And at this point, uh, really, you've got to ask yourself, you know, those who aren't flying, is there any amount of money they're going to be able to offer those guys that drop their, their summer holidays, their, their vacation plans to go back and fly? Those guys who are flying for premium are already flying for premium. So, Paul, I, I understand you're worried that we're getting them through this crisis. And, and the short-term fix was getting them through this crisis. That There was no bones made about that, but it was balanced against the long-term gains. And, and, and each member has got their own idea whether or not we made a deal that was worth the value. I'm not going to argue that you're on the other side of this and that you, you thought there was less value than we should have agreed to. But please keep that in mind. All right, thanks, Ed. Next question. Why the pilots who refused to fly the trips forced back onto their schedule being pen penalized and those who flew their trips uh, are being rewarded for their actions? What is APA doing to make those of us who refused management's pushing to be fairly compensated for losing pay? And uh, I'm going to let someone from the board, Chris, why don't you let someone from the board answer this? Because I'm under, you know, we've, we've already shopped this around the board. There is a proposal to make those guys that didn't fly those trips whole. So who, who can weigh in on this, please? Uh, first officer, Jason Gusta, DFW Vice. Hey, uh, thanks, Chris. Um, yep, <clears throat> this is something that uh, we thought a, uh, a lot about um, informally on the board. And uh, as, as Ed mentioned, um, we have started the discussion about what, what is the right answer for that. Um, you know, there, there's some things I think we have to look at from a legal perspective. You know, what funds can we use? Um, I know John Cheryl, the DFW chair and I, um, we actually have, um, I won't call it a trick up our sleeve, but we have something that, that we, we are willing to use to help our DFW-based pilots in the event that, that the board either, you know, legally or through our CNB um, run out of options. But uh, it is not something we have forgotten, and uh, it will be something we discuss next week at our special board directors meeting. All right. Thanks, Jason. Kat Powell, Chicago Chair. Yeah, thanks. Listen, I'm happy to offer a counter argument to this, which is to say, uh, first of all, I appreciate uh, the responsiveness of all our members, um, uh, and, and to know, and in no small measure, to those who, uh, who, uh, because they probably simply didn't want to go to work on the days that those trips were scheduled, that's why they dropped them in the first place. Continued with their days off. I, I would make a couple points, which is to say, uh, they weren't technically harmed because. Uh, they'd intended to drop that flying in the first place. They did drop the flying in, that for, in the first place. And, and I'm going to caution that that it sets a precedent that I think is something that we really need to think through. Every time a pilot feels like they were out on the pointy end, um, is going to now expect that the APA is going to make them, quote, whole. 
I, I think this body needs to be a little less uh, triggered to, to uh, you know, using uh, association funds in that regard. I, I just think it's a slippery slope. So, uh, that, and I'm happy to have that in an open debate uh, when we convene next week, but I, I do want that on the record. Thank you. Captain Gamble, Boston Chair. Yeah, just to articulate, I mean, the, the automated drops of those trips were to pilots not to fly those trips. And I, I know that uh, we got into this situation where all of a sudden we said there's no obligation to fly those trips because they're put, illegally put back on your, on your sequence. Uh, there are provisions um, for union to pay uh, for strike issues and uh, issues of that sort. So um, this issue about um, trying to make these pilots whole for trips that they um, voluntarily dropped is something we've talked, uh, we're talking with legal and we're going forward with that. Uh, but we do have to realize that there's a very um, uh, finite area of which that can work. And that's something that we have to be very careful of not violating any DOL um, uh, obligations as far as uh, union dues being paid for pilots um, in a situation that these pilots were, were finding themselves in. So thank you. All right, next Pete. <clears throat> next question. Uh, why did our leadership waive the policy manual waiting period for the LOA? So this would be a question for the board if, uh, if anybody wants to chime in. Captain Powell. Uh, not afraid to chime in. Uh, listen, that is a recently added piece. There's wisdom to it at times, but frankly, it is a policy manual uh, piece that is waived with a simple majority. And there was a timeliness to this that had we decided from starting on the 6th of July that we were going to sit on our hands for three days, we'd have been in court already. Uh, the company wasn't going to give us three days because the APA policy manual said you have to give it three days. Um, so it, it, it's a bit of a red herring argument. Yes, we waived it. There was a timeliness to it. And that timeliness was not, uh, uh, didn't weigh in our favor. And, and Chris, can I can I just add in? Look, it, it only requires a majority vote of the board to waive policy for a reason, because in a lot of cases, as Dave has stated, the policy needs to be waived in in for whatever reason. And in this case, what Dave said is is what I perceive to be absolutely true. The choice was waive policy, or or grieve our members getting triple triple pay. That's it, that, and we would got nothing as far as long term gains go. So I think it might've worked out in our favor in this case, but obviously waiving policy is not something you should just do flippantly. All right, uh, Boston Vice, Cap, uh, Kurt Detzer. Th thanks, Chris. Uh, Kevin Wilkes, uh, Vice Chair in Philly, had this resolution. It really is a good one. Uh, there, is, there is wisdom to wait to, to, uh, to get membership feedback. In, in this instance, however, it, there's, there's a bit of reading the tea leaves. We spent two days on the phone, on Zoom rather, uh, going over the, the advantages and disadvantages. You know, there, there is, there's certainly also a degree of glass half full, glass half empty. And I, and I know if, it, I guess uh, Paul is, is still on the call and, and he and I had this discussion and, and, you know, admittedly, he's a half glass empty guy, and I happen to be a half glass full guy. They're, you know, these, these decisions are tough. And, and, and I, 
um, I, I stand by my, my choice of, of, of voting to, to waive policy in this regard. And I, and I think it was best for the membership to do so. We had, we had members who were the next day having to either make the choice to go on the trips or not. We were, we were, we were kind of putting our, our, our members in, in a position to make that, that tough choice. And, and, I, and I, I still believe that, that we made the right choice in this regard. So um, there, there are those that, that are gonna disagree with me and, that, and that's fine. Um, I'm, a, I'm in the position to have to make that choice and, 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 I, and, I, and I made it um, and, I'm, and I'm happy with the choice I made. Uh, Captain Copeland, Miami Chair. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, chime in on the LOA piece. Uh, we sat in uh, meetings for the two days and went over the different possibilities and uh, we chose one door collectively, I should say, and we don't know what is behind door number two. And uh, some of the thoughts and comments here are as if it, is, it was decided that the company would have taken a certain course of action. You know, this is high stakes uh, poker and the company is playing its best hand and it played its hand and we went in the direction we felt collectively was necessary. Um, for uh, uh, the history piece on it, you know, like it's been touched on, the board said no to uh, last holiday, the premium pay. And then we turned around and uh, took the holiday pay this time. It's uh, confusing to the membership. I believe in staying consistent and true to what the message is. That's how we collectively move as a body and get the best results. And to uh, summarize the events, it went something like APA proposed, management countered, and APA signed. And then we jumped into signing in haste, never giving the membership a chance to look at what we were going after. As many of the members pointed out, quality, quality of life items are, are as important, if not important, as uh, the pay piece. So we never got that piece of feedback. And as much as possible as we can, we should be operating in a way that allows the membership to give us feedback because collectively we represent the will of the membership. So I just wanted to weigh in on that little piece. And uh, with that, I yield. All right, thanks, Thomas. Uh, next question, does this latest LOA <clears throat> reduce pressure on the company for the rest of the summer because it encourages premium flying? Uh, Captain Sitch, I see your hand up. Do you want to address this? Yeah, and I just want to really quickly loop back to what Thomas said. Uh, Thomas, you know, I've worked for you as a vice chair. We've known each other for a long time. We're from the same base, but I got to say, um, we, you know, I, I agree with you. We don't know what would have played out. We don't. All we can do is go with what was precedent based on case law, what our lawyers were telling us, and then game it out. We don't know. Maybe we would have been the first ones to have been declared a major work stoppage because these trips were illegally reinstated. Don't know. I can't say that. But to sit there and say that we confused the membership by turning it down in December and then accepting it now is a convenient fiction, sir. And you know it. The convenient fiction is we got nothing but a short-term fix in December. We got a long-term fix here. So please don't keep calming out the fact that they're the same and we're confusing the membership. We absolutely got more out of this. It might not be what the members want. It might not be enough considering what the members consider our leverage was, but that's what happened. As far as this goes, 
you know, solving the company's problems. I think I already addressed this with Paul DiOrio. Those who are flying premium are already flying for premium. They're going to fly for premium. The company already has the ability to offer premium for the entire summer. So they upped it. They upped it to 200%. There's critical coverage days in there. And, and the I guess the debate is, and, and Paul's going to let me know how he feels about it next, is it going to encourage any more people to come off the bench and fly premium? And, and I can't give you the answer to that. All I can state is uh, it, there's going to be a limited return. And if it goes to 300% premium, are there going to be even more people showing up to fly? And eventually, those who fly for premium are going to be IMAXed out. Um, well, the premium doesn't count against IMAX, but they're going to be far limited out. And there's going to be other ramifications that happen. For instance, they're going to run up against the maximum number of days they can fly. And there's, there's other 117 implications. So I, you know, there's a limited amount of juice they're going to get out of this. I don't think we fixed it, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm listening to the debate guys. It's all up to you. All right. Next question. And just in the interest of time, we'll try to uh, minimize debate here because uh, we do have a hard out about 14 minutes. Uh, if green July was a company issue to fix, couldn't APA have done nothing? Uh, Philly chair, Paul DiOrio. I don't know if you had your question up for this one, but uh, you want to address no, this? No, no, I, I wanted to respond. Uh, look, the three-day waiting period is there for a reason. Uh, in my view, yeah, it's, it's for the membership, but it's also to, you know, comb through the LOA and identify uh, weak language or, or, or problems with it or what does this mean? In fact, we had a Philly town hall uh, yesterday and there were a lot of questions on it. And we had a member of the negotiating committee and, and you know, she said, this isn't a criticism of her or the committee, is, I don't know, we're still, you know, we're still trying to figure out that or waiting on the company. Uh, you know, basically, we don't know, you know, how they're going to work through this, and that should all be figured out before we vote. And look, and you know, and uh, whether the company would have gone to court or not, they probably would have. But what do we do by waiving policy? We say put some artificial timeline on it. This has to be done right now. Uh, you have to waive policy. You know, we have a policy for a reason. The company has policy. Uh, you know, we don't go into them and say, you know, don't follow this. We shouldn't. They shouldn't be expected to have APA not adhere for policy. It's a sound policy. It was brought up by uh, you know, Kevin Wilkes, uh, three days, and I think Alpha is seven days. Alpha has to have it in hand for seven days, and we have three, and we couldn't even adhere to three days. So I'm not sure I agree with um, that we, you know, we would have lost our, our, our any leverage. Uh, the company wanted to resolve the problem, uh, and I think waiting three days it wouldn't have it wouldn't have done anything. I, you know, regardless, I still would have voted no uh, because of that. Among other things, that that I disagree with you, Ed. If the company could fly the schedule, if they thought they could fly the schedule this summer in July and August with the current premium, they never would have put that in there. They never. They need something else to entice people. And and maybe it's the same people flying premium, but maybe it's not. Someone said that uh, earlier that no one dropped one of those 300% trips. Yeah, money, when you increase the money to at a point, people are going to say, I wasn't going to do it before, but I'm going to do it now. Uh, and so I think the company's smarter than us. They said, we got to offer more money. Um, premium this summer because we don't have enough pilots. All right, thanks. Uh, next, uh, so I'll I'll hit on this. It's quick and it really kind of has has been hit already. We've we've talked about the number of trips that we had on the first day and the number of the pilots that <clears throat> that, that showed up. So uh, yeah, we technically we could have done nothing and, and we would have gotten nothing out of it. And the company likely would have filled many of those trips, probably not all of them. But um, so that should answer that question. Just in the interest of time and moving on. Um, all right. Why did you why did you not tell the company to pound sand when they threatened a TRO? Uh, this has kind of been answered. Uh, Jim Clark addressed the uh, the TRO issue. We kind of went around this, but 
I'll give just a second if any if anybody else wants to touch on this. Uh, DC Chair, first time speaker, Captain Joe Collins. Hey, good evening, everyone. I've been uh, I've been pretty quiet this evening. Uh, the bottom line is the APA board majority chose a direction, and uh, a lot of the discussion was admittedly behind closed doors. Uh, those of us that were on the no side of this, I won't uh, I, I won't ascribe you know my feelings to all, but I'm certainly willing to speak on why I voted how I voted, and and part of it was based on um, you know some some historical relevancy in which uh, previous uh, CEO of the airline, uh, Don Cardi, threatened uh, APA pilots and uh, he was on the courthouse steps and uh, the pilots um, soiled themselves and voted yes and uh, the flight attendants voted no. Immediately there was an about face by Don Cardi. Sweeteners were given, the flight attendants re-voted, there was a re-vote and uh, then the flight attendants voted yes. Some of us wanted to press the test some of us wanted to, some of us perhaps didn't like uh, being forced to make a choice under duress. But the body, the board chose a direction. And uh, I'll speak to the 369 participants that are still here. Uh, that is the direction that was chosen by the board. And that is the direction chosen by the president. And I support the board decision and the president's decision I just happen to disagree. Chris and Joe, if, if I can, look, the way to, to have avoided this, and I knew this from the beginning, is file a presidential grievance. If we file a presidential grievance, I can unilaterally make the change, and I don't need to go to the board to have them waive policy. But we chose not to go down that path. We debated it. I think we saw both sides of the argument. It's not a perfect agreement, and it never will be. But, but that is the way to avoid this kind of a policy dilemma. All right, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> next question. Um, why did our president's communications during Green July imply more holidays eligible for holiday pay had been agreed to with Iceland, but the actual agreement reflected much less? So, Ed, you already touched on this. Um, it, it was there was a, a difference between what Iceland said he would agree to in principle and then when that went yeah. back to the negotiating committees. But anything to add on that? You've already kind of hit on that. No, no sir. And, and remember, it wasn't until the seventh phone call at the very end when we had the half hour to decide the duress, the gun to the head stuff, that the uh, holiday the holiday was pulled back from the original uh, eight periods that we had listed. And those are like uh, New Year's, Labor Day, uh, Easter Sunday, all that stuff to just those three areas around uh, is actually four bands around Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's. So it was you know, it was just high stakes. And at the same time, you know, the CEO, he basically backed out. He went back to his team. And I think this is the, the key out of this, Chris, is that, you know, I think Isom in principle is on board with us. The minute it gets to his team of Lucretia, of, of you know, Todd Jewett and, and those guys, it gets twisted, contorted and turned inside out. And then it comes back that Robert won't cut against his team. That's the issue. All right, thank you, Captain Sitcher. So last question of the uh, pre-submitted, and we're gonna try to get to a few of the Q&A. Um, <clears throat> why didn't uh, all the domicile reps issue clear guidance to pilots who had uh, trips forced back on their lines? So I'll, I'll wait for any of the domicile reps to, to chime in here, but I'll, I'll say that th there was, let me explain how the, the communications work as a, as a previous uh, domicile rep. So 
the domicile reps theoretically shouldn't be sending 10 communication blasts when there is guidance from national. And, and as I stated earlier, there was guidance from national. Now, there's no problem with the domicile reps reiterating that guidance, which I felt this was in addition to what national had, had already sent out. Um, so I see uh, Kurt Detzer, Boston Vice, he's got his hand raised. Kurt, you want to, Kurt, you want to talk about this? Sure. Th thanks, Chris. And, and just, just as you said, there, there was national guidance and, and um, we, we in Boston were not going to certainly go against national guidance or, or we felt no need to clarify anything that, that national guidance and, and legal had already put out. We did go to our Boston-based uh, uh, pilots who had those particular situations and, and talked to them personally. Um, we did not feel a need until uh, we made a decision to go to each to to the base to put out a base blast, going against anything anybody said or 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 reiterating what had already been said. I I I, I, I I'm babbling through this a little bit, but I, I think it's clear. We 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 called our we called our guys and girls, uh, gals, uh, who were directly affected on that sixth, seventh, eighth time period before this issue was made. That's all I got. All right, thanks, Curtis. Uh, we are now gonna get through as many of these uh, Q&A questions as we can in the next five minutes. So I'm just gonna go down the line here based on the, the, the highest number of upvotes that we got. So negotiating committee, if you guys wanna queue up and get ready. Uh, the first one from Jody, what was the purpose slash trade-off of holiday pay being only for actual time flown? If you're sitting in a hotel, uh, in Salvador for Christmas, you are still away from the family and getting paid zero extra to do so. Hey, this is uh, Chris Walker negotiating. What was the trade-off? There was no trade-off. It, it's something that we had no provision for whatsoever. And now we've got a provision where we get paid premium on the days. Yes, of course, we would like it to be for the full sequence. Yes, we wanted it to be for nine holidays plus two peak periods. That was originally what was on the table in section six and we've been asking for for over a year. Every time we asked for that, it's been struck. The company's not interested in it. We took opportunity to get a long-term section six gain. The company uh, edited down and finally relented to the nine days that they picked. Um, I understand that it would be nice to have uh, it be for the sequence and not just be for the block on a day. But I understand this is under the LOA and section six is still open. So we have a ongoing dialogue that we can use in order to seek out further improvements if able. Thanks, Chris. Next one. Well, when in your best estimate can we expect a tentative agreement for a vote? Yeah, that's a really speculative question. Uh, I would like it to be as soon as possible. I would argue that we are 90% of the way there but that last 10% is the most important things to us. We are significantly apart on pay. And the company did not even want to respond to our initial asks on pay. It was only with the specter of a United TA that the company came back to us with a pay proposal that put them at to the cent matching what United was being offered. Someone posted it in the chat and I can confirm that uh, United uh, Alpa has just announced that they're uh, pushing their vote off for three more months on their TA to in order to go back to the table and negotiate further. I think that that was influenced by uh, the the offer made directly to the pilots from AA 
and some of our ongoing things, look, that's a good thing. We need to pattern bargain. All ships will rise together. All airline pilots deserve increased pay. That may take some time. Now, we want to get this thing wrapped up as soon as possible, but uh, there are things by which we will not give in order to bring the pilots to TA. There are things by which the board has tasked us that we must get before we can bring something to them to send you all for a TA. So I still set a goal where I want to have it done by the end of summer, but I can't make any promises. All right, thanks, Chris. Next question. After three years of bargaining, I'm wondering why we have not progressed to requesting mediation and get the RLA process moving. Well, maybe one of the um, legal would like to talk about specifics to the Important, RLA process, but to understand it hasn't just been three years of negotiating. It has not been normal times. We had openers. We hit an amendable date. There was a negotiating committee that had a robust ask, and the company came back with an offer that put us over a billion and a half dollars apart. And then COVID hit and everything was put on back burner as far as it went with section six as we dealt through all of the different machinations that came out of COVID, potential bankruptcy, zero lines, furloughs, PSP, vaccination issues, et cetera. Then around June of last year, we went and refocused our efforts, told the company we wanted refocused efforts on Section 6, and I would argue that it's been about a year, and I wish things had moved a lot faster. But unfortunately, we don't drive the pace of negotiations. All we can do is be there, which we have been. We make sure that our passes are always on the company's uh, uh, table, that the ball is always in their court. And now, as the pressure has increased for them in order to get us a good contract, they seem to be um, uh, dealing more. To go to the RLA at this time is a strategy that I would let leave to the decision to the board, but perhaps Jim can talk about what it takes to do that and why we may not be at that position right now. Jim Clark, you want to weigh in on that? Uh, just briefly, I, I, I think uh, suffice it to say, as Chris indicated, the, the negotiations, while obviously not moving at the pace that any of us would would like at this point, um, there is still movement going on. And we, we um, I'm not at the table, but certainly the reports from the negotiating committee have not indicated that, that they are at a stalemate with the company uh, on any of the issues that are still on the table. So um, I think strategically right now where we're at, the, uh, the view is that, you know, we're better served to try and continue the process at the table and move towards getting a deal uh, without essentially giving up on that process and moving into the, uh, into the NMB um, structure and having to essentially start from scratch over with a mediator. Um, now that could change and, and uh, it may change, but I think right now, as Chris indicated, uh, progress has been made on a substantial number of areas and uh, the 
the hope remains at the negotiating committee level and certainly at the board level that a deal can be struck by the parties at the table. But, you know, the NMB is an option if and when we get to that point. Um, we're just not there yet. All right, thanks, Jim. Uh, we are at the two and a half hour point. I'm gonna take one more question and then unfortunately we're gonna to have to wrap this up. Uh, from Paul, what happens to the sections of the contract that have not been implemented when we sign a new contract? I need some more fidelity on what exactly they're asking. Unimplemented items that we already own, there's still an implementation structure. It runs in parallel to anything new that we would negotiate. Um, we have no plans to negotiate away from anything that we have previously gained, um, and we continue to work towards implementation. For this contract that, that we are negotiating, it is a key um, outcome of this committee to not negotiate anything that cannot be implemented. And so we expect to have known implementation timelines with dates certain and penalties for if they are not. Um, I, I can't speak to what was negotiated prior to my time here, uh, other than we will continue to strive for, for implementation of those items and everything that we are doing moving forward. We do not want to um, replicate a situation where there's an unimplemented item that sits out there forever and we can't force the company to either pay a penalty or implement it. All right, thanks, Chris. Okay, so we've uh, we've hit our time stop. Um, we have to get going here. Uh, apologies to those uh, questions in the Q&A that we couldn't get to. Uh, feel free to send those to sound offs to your reps, to the negotiating committee, to the applicable subject matter experts, um, if, uh, if you wanted a, an answer on that. Uh, negotiating committee, there was one more just comment on there from somebody saying, can we publish more negotiating committee updates, please? So uh, just take that for what it's worth. I wanna thank uh, all of the attendees who showed up. Um, if for those who were looking at the participants, uh, I, I know we had over 600 participants at one point. However, we also do have probably a large number of participants through the telephone town hall function. Uh, so thank you all for showing up to the 303 who are still here. Thank you for hanging with us for two and a half hours. Thank you to our committee members um, uh, who have likewise uh, stuck with us, particularly the negotiating committee for taking all the questions. Um, and that's all I've got. <clears throat> Again, we'll be doing this on a regular basis. So uh, next month, more of the same. Thanks, everybody. Great job, Chris. Thank you.